Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. So you are Ian Juby, the, I was going to make sure I had like a list of your, your accomplishments and, and all the things that go underneath your name. <laughs> I don't have a lot there, so. Well, I mean, at least it sounds like you have kind of an interesting, interesting past or occupation or hobbies. Like you've done some yeah, archaeology, yeah, you've lots, done. Yeah, a right? lot of hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> Is that Let's basically that the extent way, of yeah. it? It's just like you're, a, you're yeah. a, a, except, a maverick hobbyist? Yeah, yeah, except I get paid for the hobbies sometimes. So what does that make you? I don't know. A freelancer? I don't know. Yeah, freelancer. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I was thinking professional, but freelancer. I like that better, yes. <laughs> so what what all have you, I mean, can, can you kind of give me at least a little bit more of a, uh, some threshold or kind of try to sure. understand the range of your hobbies and, and what you're interested in? Yeah, so I... I, I um, started off as a robotics engineer. That's what I actually went to school for. No way. And um, when I, uh, after I graduated from college, uh, I was I was backslidden at the time. I, I became a born-again Christian when I was 13, um, but uh, backslid a few years after that. And uh, so it was uh, about eight years I was just backslid, just destroyed my life, really. Okay. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, so after I graduated college, which was the course I wanted to take, um, and had a blast, it was a lot of fun. Um, but my life just took a dive and I took, I came, returned back to the Lord at that point and, uh, even wound up down at, um, last days ministries in Texas, Keith Green and Melody Green, uh, they started that ministry. Oh, okay. And so I, I wound up down there, uh, and, uh, took they called it the discipleship training school. Uh, they had just joined in with Youth with a okay. Mission YWAM. So this is probably one of the earlier iterations of because I mean I went to a similar kind of like school focused very much on like on one missionary. One? I mean I went to a, to a school called Fire School of Ministry in North Carolina, which is like I'm connected to the Brownsville movement, all that. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm not doc- familiar with that. Okay, one. okay, okay. Interesting. I mean, all of these are super sort of like I mean I guess if if you know them, then you know them, and like I, yeah. I mean I'm familiar with YWAM. Right, right. At least, I mean, yeah, because that's continued on. Fire, I guess, is a little bit more kind of under the radar, but I mean, I, I right. feel like it's similar kind of idea of, well, I mean, and it maybe anyways. Probably was, probably was, because I mean, they they had uh, they had what they called their intensive Christian training school at, yeah. at Last Days Ministries, and that was based on uh, Lauren Cunningham's uh DTS, the Discipleship Training School. So, I mean, they all kind of go off the same idea of, you know, uh, basically the idea is that it takes uh, six months to change uh, behavior or thinking on average. 
uh, and whatnot. So they usually okay, base so it there around. is a method to the madness of <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So they they kind of so, sort of focus on that six month time right. span, you know. And it was for YWAM, it was basically five months and a month of outreach. Okay, uh, yeah. five months of training, and uh, you, you know what? I have never, not before nor since, I have never seen a program that so radically changed so many people in such a short amount of time. Uh, never, not before or since. Uh, it was, it was yeah, pretty. It seems like it's certainly like a, an intense experience for yes. people. To it. <laughs> yep, it was. Yeah. So, but that was, I mean, when I think about my experience at the school I went to, it's more, more of a complicated thing for me to kind of unpack as far as like, like there, there was some really inspiring, really exciting moments in that experience. Mm-hmm. It was, this was like a three year kind of Bible school, but there was also a lot of, I mean, that was kind of where I started asking a lot of the, well, I guess probably the first moments in my life where I really started asking the deep questions or really feeling uh, right. willing to ask them. Cause I thought, okay, like up to that point, like, like well, eventually I'll get to answer, answer or ask that question because I'll be at school and then, mm-hmm. and then I'll be able to get all the answers there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I didn't have the experience I was looking for in my... <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and uh, I lost my train of thought. But I mean... Let's see if I catch the caboose. P- part of it even was like, <laughs> I ended up getting stumbled up on this like creation evolution debate. Yes, and uh, when, when I was at Last Days... Um, they had, it was a huge base. I mean, there yeah. was 300 some people living there, uh, full cafeteria. They had a full television recording studio, everything. And, uh, they brought in this guy and because I, uh, I, I basically grew up, uh, working in a summer science camp, uh, in Eastern Ontario. I started teaching when I was 16. And, um, at the, at that time, that science camp was the only one of its kind we knew of in the world. Now, about five, six years after they started it, um, they started springing up all over the world. You know, and by the time, you know, 10 years down the road, we had heard of others in, you know, Russia and all over the place. Right. So the concept kind of spread. So anyone, everyone kind of looked to me as like the science guy, right? right. <laughs> so, and, and I, was, I was interested right. in that. You know, anything science and tech, I was into that. You know, I love it. Uh, so when I was at Last Days, they brought in this guy by the name of Dr. Carl Baugh. And he did a three and a half hour lecture off the top of his head, uh, with <laughs> him and a whiteboard, and they recorded it all, and made yeah. a video series, yeah. and it was just riveting stuff. Okay. And I had sort of, eh, everybody thought I knew what I was talking about with creation and evolution. Really, I didn't, especially in hindsight. It's right. like I knew nothing. But you at least and, knew enough to 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 teach something that people were interested yeah, in. Yeah, I suppose you know, the expression, you know enough to be dangerous. You know, that kind <laughs> of, yeah. So this guy came in and, and did this three and a half hour lecture. Like okay. That, and it was riveting stuff. Yeah. And of course he had done a whole pile of uh, firsthand research in, um, in the Paluxy River with uh, fossil human and fossil dinosaur tracks okay. uh, found together in the riverbed as well. And, uh, well, I meant to, Post to Facebook that I was on your podcast. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, uh, I, I wrote a letter because back then you know email didn't exist. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I wrote him a letter at the museum, and uh, just before we left for our outreach, which we wound up going to Russia, we were in Russia um, two weeks after the wall came down. I think it was. Uh, we even beat the Mormons in there. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing actually. Wow. Uh, it was 
quite stunning. So we were down in Tuapsi, and now everybody knows where Sochi is now because of the Olympics, right? So we were down in Tuapsi, Sochi, on the Black Sea, that region. Uh, okay. We were there for uh, uh, five weeks, thereabouts. Um, to go, so, you were you were doing some archaeology stuff there. Or? No, that was that was the outreach portion. Oh, okay. Of, so missions training. Okay, okay. Basically, okay, okay. we were. Sorry. you know, I'm jumping ahead reaching. a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, so just before we left, I wrote this letter just saying, you know, I'm going to be back in, you know, a month. I'd like to come volunteer at your museum for a while if possible. And so when I got back, I had a really nice letter, uh, and phone calls, uh, from him actually, cause he called the base cause he had been there before yeah. <laughs> and, uh, they were running their first what Now, what did they call it? Uh, his wife, Martha was the one who arranged it and it was a, huge success it was a um creation fair i think is what he called it and so basically they had uh speakers they had uh people bring displays and exhibits they had the that something like 5500 people come through on that weekend alone uh, it was it was huge and uh so that that was coming up and he's like yeah you know we could use your help volunteering for this and it was cool because he, he i was there for uh, i think three weeks Wow. And so you got literally scientists and engineers from all That's, over the yeah. world coming in. You were, you were still, wait, how old were you at this time? This oh, was 20. Okay. So this, like this was right at the time where you're like probably wanting to start really jumping into these questions. Yeah. And suddenly you're surrounded by yeah, all was, these. I was still in repair mode actually, at that point. Could you, could you, Evan, could you just turn off the, the air? I don't want to have that just for sound. But that's Yeah, because these things will probably pick it up. Evan. A little bit, yeah. Right. Okay, that's, I mean, so that must have been an awesome experience. Yeah, yeah, it was, you just, you just sit there and just soak up information, you know, because uh, these people are coming from all over the world. Um, wow. And it was, uh, it was a blast. Now, I was still very much in repair mode because I had damaged myself so much mentally, emotionally, stuff like, in particular. Um, so I was still very much in repair mode and heal mode, heal mode. Um, but it was still, it was very much life-changing. Um, and then wound up coming back to Canada and, uh, the owners of the science camp, Wayne and Carol, uh, had been doing contract work with the separate school board, uh, here in Ontario, uh, with, uh, in Ottawa Valley. And, uh, so they were building this brand new high school and, um, they said, basically, you know, we could, you know, they could really use your help, but they basically, they spent, I don't know, a couple million dollars on new high-tech equipment from wow, the tech okay. wing. And, uh, they're, you know, could you stick around for a couple of weeks right. to, you know, help set everything up and, you know, teach the teachers so how to use the equipment, figure it out, all that, yeah. because of my robotics background, right? They had a lot of, right. uh, you know, robotic industrial machines, um, welders. And I mean, it was right up my alley. It was, it was, right, okay. it was glorious. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, all this, you know, the latest in tech, it was, it was cool. And so I wanted, I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Cause I'm just going to go back to Texas. Right? right. That was the plan. I just yeah. go back to last days and volunteer for four or five months. Or okay, yeah. And, uh, so at the end of two weeks, I'm there and, uh, teacher comes out of the back room in the tech wing and says, congratulations. I said, thanks for what? Says you got the job. What job? What are you talking about? Right. You know, and uh, the uh, little a few minutes later, the uh, the uh, department head comes in. He says, "Congratulations! <laughs> Thanks for what? You got the job. What job? What are you talking about? Right. I wasn't applying for a job." <laughs> and uh, so basically, they they 
they gave me a permanent job. And I was just baffled. I'm, I'm, I'm going home and I'm praying about this going like, Lord, what am I supposed to do? I was planning on going back to Texas. I had, this was not my intention. Yeah. And, um, prayed about it for days and just could not get an answer. And I'm like, well, all right, I have an open door before me. Um, I'll take it. If I'm not supposed to take it, stop me. Pretty simple. You know, uh, the Lord knows my heart. He knows I'm not, you know, I'm not walking in rebellion. I'm trying to follow his lead. And, uh, it was an awesome job that prepared me for what I was going to do. Uh, I learned so much. I wound up working there 10 years. Right. Uh, but that first year, uh, this one young guy, uh, going to the school asked, uh, he was supposed to do a class project and he asked because he knew of my interest in creation and evolution. He asked, uh, his teacher, if he could bring me in as a guest speaker to work on his project with him. And so we did, and that was the first creation evolution talk I ever gave in the public school was that, and it just kept happening because teachers and students kept asking. And then, uh, so I started developing what I would speak on. It, it taught me how to teach it basically, you know? And, uh, out of that, uh, I started developing the, the creation museum that I built from scratch, which was the first one in the country that I know of. Um, and, uh, you actually... You, you currently still run this, like this is a yes, whole museum? Uh, yeah, no, it's it's kind of shifted mode in the past seven years okay. um, because about, about uh, sorry, eight years now. Uh, about eight years ago, um, I started producing on YouTube. This was when YouTube was still pretty right. new. You know? <laughs> uh, I started producing uh, a TV, sh- uh, basically a TV show. It was, right. it was a show on YouTube uh, called Genesis Week, and it was just a, a weekly show. And, uh, but I was on the road at the time with my museum. So I was traveling all over North America with this thing. And, uh, so, I mean, I literally set up my green screen, hang it from the ceiling in the the basement of the pastor's house I'm staying at in Nova Scotia, film it, you know, and edit and upload it. And, uh, so one of the pastors in Newfoundland, uh, Dino, Dino Young, if you're listening, uh, I think I actually have knew that guy. Yeah, or, or met him before. actually, you probably yeah, you yeah. probably have. You probably have. So he he's uh, he was like, oh, I I think you should make that for TV. You should make you know put it on Miracle Channel. And um, originally, when I made the show, I did have Miracle Channel uh, in mind. In fact, I made a pilot. Yeah, so that's show. like a Christian uh, TV yeah. station. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was uh, because when Miracle Channel first started in Canada, it was actually illegal to have a Christian TV station in Canada. Okay. So this is the name Miracle Channel. (laughs) So (laughs) So it's not not specifically Christian, but it's about miracles and miraculous things. Well, well, yeah, but um, well, except that was the miracle part because it was the first Christian television station in Canada. So they managed to get around the law on it or get it changed? They, they basically, yes. Okay. They, okay. they, they convinced the CRTC to allow it. Okay. Uh, frankly, the, the bogus, the arguments against it were bogus anyway. Uh, cause it's like, well, nobody's telling the Muslims they can't have a TV station. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why, why? Right. Well, it points to this kind of core animosity between the institution and well, I don't know. It's there. There's certainly, I mean, growing up in the similar circles as as I think you're probably still involved in, mm-hmm. like there was always this sense that like that 
the government was sort of out to get us and like stop stop Christianity from spreading, which I I, I kind of understand from so, to some extent. I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm still kind of processing how 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 much that seems to really be the case, but there, there's definitely a I don't know. It's it it is a tough one, and especially back then too. So this would have been wow. Well, this is going back a lot because the guy that brought me to the Lord, uh, Beaver, he actually, uh, we, all, we all call him Beaver. That's just his nickname. Um, he actually had uh, several Christian radio programs that he had run previously yeah. in, the, uh, in the 80s. And um, that was the point then was you couldn't have a Christian radio station. Uh, CRTC is like, nope. Uh, if we, if you're allowed to have a Christian radio station or a Christian TV station, then the Muslims can have a Christian, or the Muslims can have a Muslim TV station or a Muslim radio station. More power to them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're, we're, it's we're like we're, well, we're already. It's like it's not like you're going to stop the spread of values. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's other religions that I mean, the, the religions just don't necessarily have names, but there's sort of a religious, um, moral. Uh, directional that that like any any other tvs or any other stories are are sort of promoting so it's like yeah like it, you're preventing religious thinking from being yeah going so, on tv yeah so and it was that was that was the argumentation right right and it well as you you know as you noted it's it's a bogus argument yeah it, it just doesn't stack up so eventually they caved and they allowed miracle channel to start up um the christian radio station in ottawa uh, also sprung up the radio station uh, sprung up at okay. that time as well. Um, I forget the name of that station right now. That's horrible. <laughs> anyway, uh, so where was I going with that? Yes, okay, Miracle Channel. So yeah. I actually talked with Miracle Channel and showed them my pilot show, which was uh, filmed on the banks of the Paluxy River during one of the, uh, they have public excavations there, the Creation Evidence Museum, okay. Dr. Carl Baugh. They have uh, public excavations. You can go and participate in excavating dinosaur tracks, really? hopefully fossil That's human footprints. Cool. Um, and they do they do uncover them still. Uh, it's been it's been a few years of a yeah. dry spell now, but um, but there are so many dinosaur tracks there too. Uh, just just in that one mile stretch of river, um, I added it up and it was well over a thousand dinosaur tracks and over a hundred human fo fossil footprints in that wow. one which mile stretch doesn't uh that that would be kind of a key thing to point to i guess for for like the debate between evolution and, and creation because or at least like six day creation maybe we should start <laughs> start talking that way already yeah because, differentiate a little bit but like <laughs> because from an evolutionary perspective, dinosaurs or like maybe we also want to distinguish between macro and microevolution. I don't know. You, you did this at the beginning of your series too, but like mm -hmm. in general, when people talk about evolution, they're thinking about millions of years and yep. they're thinking about, uh, you know, consciousness eventually inhabiting or like life and then consciousness sort of spontaneously mm -hmm. emerging. Um, but so, so we could just settle on those terms that evolution is a reference to that yes. and creation is a reference to six days. Yes. But yes. So within the evolutionary model, there wouldn't be dinosaurs and humans on the earth at the same time. Correct. And there's been multiple uh, evolutionary scholars who have who have said that in print. Right. That if you find uh, fossil humans and fossil dinosaurs together, uh, that completely 
disqualifies the theory of evolution and affirms the biblical young earth creation model, specifically the right. young earth creation model, because there are people who believe God used uh, evolution and billions of years to... Yeah. To well, create, I mean, so. to, to, to get the uh, the elephant out of the in the room right early, I mean, I, right. I find that compelling. Like, I, I, I don't... I, I find... Yeah, it, it seems to me the case. I, I Obviously, I still appreciate and, and practice Christianity, <laughs> but I, I, it seems that the evidence for evolution seems compelling and, and interesting to me. Okay. So, like... I, so, which evidence? <laughs> I mean, partly just the theory itself. Like, there's... Mm -hmm. So, there's there's a... Jumping into this already. <laughs> uh, I mean, part part of what's gonna gonna trip us up here is that I, I'm not. I mean, it's interesting to me that you've actually done some on the ground, like actually done the science. Whereas right. most people, when they try to have this conversation, you're trying to sort of dip your hands into some pretty deep vats of, of information and conversations about that yeah. very technical stuff. And like, I, I can't get that deep into that. But I, I don't want to use that as an excuse. But I, I, I'm. But excited that I could fair. that I could have you here actually having had some hands-on interaction with this stuff um, but I mean it's funny I, I the first time I actually started to learn about evolution and like understand it from a a non-christian biased because obviously it's it's always biased there's always you're always mm -hmm. talking about a theory from a particular perspective but the first time I heard it from a sort of evolutionary science biased perspective was when I read the selfish gene oh yes right which right. When I read that, I mean, I, I guess I, I had kind of been a little bit more open to potentially evolution um, as a means of God sort of creating existence um, and humans since since kind of having these conversations in college and having watching debates between like Kent Hoven and Hugh Ross right. and watching um, what's his face the uh, uh, Ken Ham I think that's him and then Bill oh, yeah. I. Yep. Yeah. So th th those were some key key moments to kind of look to, and like a lot of people saw that Nyham debate. Yeah, <laughs> it was like something like five million people watching watching yeah. live. Which I mean, it's interesting because I feel like that kind of somewhat speaks to the moment we were in at that time yeah. because the that debate was a little hotter than it is now. It's I, to some extent I, I feel mm -hmm. sort of a momentum towards, and maybe it's just that I mean there's sort of a a, a community bias of or let's see. Uh, what do you say, a, a information bias? Where you like kind of look for the things that you, that are from uh, confirmation yeah, bias. Yeah, confirmation yeah. bias, right. Um, right. Just like from the communities I'm surrounding myself, it, it seems that Christians are going this way because the Christians that I'm interacting with are going this way. Yep. yep. But it, it feels like that's where a lot of, a lot of Christians are kind of becoming less, less jumpy about the idea of, of evolution and, a, and an old earth and old universe. Right. But, so, I mean, Sorry, I mean, you asked me what evidence and partly, I mean, the, the only really key evidence that kind of tipped me over the edge to suddenly just being like, okay, I just certainly believe it in old universe was when Hugh Ross talked about the, um, the, the stars, distance talked about the distance line. of the stars, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. which that kind of was like, okay, that, that just makes sense to me. Right. Regard, I'm not even sure with Hugh Ross's his view is, he thinks maybe, I, th I think he even makes, his model is like multiple creation events different times historically I believe so which to is be, kind of a weird one i not yeah <laughs> and and to be honest i've kind of forgotten exactly what yeah. it is but i believe that's correct which is um yeah it's which is already yeah as you say very different but i mean it makes sense of sort of the like potentially yeah millions billions of years that he's he feels convinced of based on the astronomy 
Yeah, and that is actually one of the more common questions. Right. What about distant starlight yeah. in in a young universe? And there's actually some. There's actually multiple um, responses to that, including uh, that is actually a self defeating argument because, uh, and here's why: the the energy that's spread throughout the universe it has to get from one end of the universe to the other. Right. It can't travel faster than the speed of light. Right. But the distance or the time required for that energy to evenly disperse is greater than the uh, the alleged age of the universe. So you've got, they've got the same problem, the same uh, starlight problem as well. Wait, wait. walk me through that one more time. So the so, potential distance of, yeah, the, so like. So to, 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 yeah, throw like, some numbers into this equation trying to make sense of it. So like, yeah, let's say, let's say the furthest one is like <laughs> 20 million light years away, which that's probably totally off. Yeah, it'd be probably like 20 billion or something like sure. that. Sure. Okay. Um, so basically... I mean, you could probably look this up, Evan. But... Well, the... Uh, the looking um, for the furthest star. Is, is that probably the, the information we're looking for? Pro, um, no, because it'd be more from one end of the universe to the other. Well, So it'd be, be like the diameter of the known universe, okay. basically. Um, but is, if you're going one end to the other, then... I don't think you need the diameter. You need the radius, or at least uh, to to the center or sure, to the earth. Sure, except except the energy is evenly dispersed. So it's evenly dispersed. What do you yes, mean? Yes, yes. So it evenly distributed. Let's put it that way. So energy has to get from one end of the universe to the other. It has to all spread out evenly. And so it's it. Uh, yeah, ninety three billion light years. Okay, 93 billion. <laughs> so um, 20 million was way off, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, uh, and I, again, I'd have to go back over the numbers. It's been a long time sure, since sure, I, sure. I looked but, at these but, numbers. But just it starts, as far as like a simple sort of equation. Yeah, and, and their, so their answer to that is actually the exact same answer that uh, us young Earth creationists would give. And that is that time is a variable. It's relative. Yeah, exactly. It's relative. Uh, so clocks at the top of mountains run faster than clocks at sea level because gravity affects time. Right. So when you're out in the middle of the universe or, uh, or out at some distant star where it's out in a part of the universe where there's very little matter, very little gravity, time is extremely fast. So you can have a star that is billions of years old, even though here on earth, it's only been a few thousand years. Because time is different there than here. What what's that movie? Uh, uh, Interstellar. Interstellar, Interstellar yeah. which I never did finish. Okay, finish it's a good, movie. it's a good, it's a good movie. But yeah, it's that, that kind of principle, right? So, um, I mean, I can't obviously, <laughs> I can't understand Einsteinian time theory, like relativity theory, yeah, it's, very well. It's super, it's super complicated, complicated. <laughs> but. I don't know. I, I I'm not really sure what to do with that. I mean, you're saying so that it would be so drastic that like that mm-hmm. that time would would literally so experientially from that star, that star sort of if you lived on that star, yes, it would have been mil- billions of years. But here, it hasn't yes. been billions of yeah, years. Correct. There, relative to Earth, it's billions of years because the time is traveling as is. <laughs> it's a different time scale than here, and it is difficult to wrap your head around. I agree. I, I I obviously can't argue with that because I can't I can't en- <laughs> I can't engage the understanding very well, but 
but it's a common question. Yeah, it's it's one of the it's one of the more common ones. Um, another common question is where's all the all the human fossils, and uh, which again is perfectly well. And I mean the the, the creation scientist um, like books I read in high school, like I, I was you know I was homeschooled, so my mom th- went out of her way to try to find Christian science books, yep. and so uh, they would they talked about even how there was. Um, they didn't talk about the specific guy, but I did some Googling earlier today. If, if you want to try and pull this up, Evan, there's um, there's a guy named Charles... D- D- it's not Charles Darwin. It throws me off because it's Dar- Charles D- D- Dawkins. No, no, Charles... Lyell? <laughs> no, okay, that, that's a different guy too. But okay. this, this guy was the one who basically built a museum and sort of planted a whole bunch of, of, of fake fossils to try to like show off that oh. evolution was real, you know? And this was one of the guys that sort of a lot of What's his name Charles. It's Charles something, but just look up look up fake um, ape. I think it's called the St- Stilton Man or something like that. Yeah, the Piltdown Piltdown Man. Man. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And it's the name is yeah Charles Dawson. Charles yeah. Dawson. Yeah. Oh, he's, I didn't he's remember that name who, either. Yeah. But anyway, apparently he he had a whole bunch of these. He basically just put a whole bunch of different bones together, right. and right. that was kind of the key figure that that a lot of. Uh, young Earth creations pointed to in, in some of the uh, not not him particularly, but they said they kind of made these kind of sweeping claims that in general, all these uh, bones that were like supposedly half ape, half man, or like transitional forms were like just bogus, just made up. So, right, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear kind of. I, I, it sounds like most of these arguments you've done a deeper dive than than a lot of people that I know. Yeah, well, and I, I almost never bring up Piltdown Man. Uh, in fact, when I do bring it up, I bring it up, uh, to, uh, kind of put, put, um, put away the argument of consensus science because the consensus was this is powerful proof of evolution at the time. And it was consensus for like 50 years or something. Yeah. Some ridiculous, uh, some ridiculous number. So consensus science, but that's a, a completely different argument i i almost never refer to built down man because it's just okay it was right, a, yeah it's it just a silly yeah, yeah oh well <laughs> but what you is know. i mean what are some of the key i mean maybe we can jump back to the uh the the fossils of like footprints of men and dinosaurs at the same time yep. maybe we should go back to that, that in a second but as far as like the sort of supposed um uh fossil record of of yep different i don't know we always i mean you talked about it in, in your lectures that there's like a um this picture of the, the yep. evolutionary skeletons and stuff like that. The only yep. place apparently you see that is in, is ascent, in textbooks. The ascent of man, yep. <laughs> and it is. And and even the evolutionists have said that. Okay. So even the even evolutionary scholars have discounted that chart and said flat out, it's just, it doesn't exist. Um, in fact, if you look at so it... So why why would they make that claim as far as within a, from an evolutionary well, perspective? Well, it's, it's a popular science thing. Right. So it's, uh, it's, it's not a... It's just that it's not a clear linear like these guys to these guys. I mean, we read right. we read Yuval Harari's *Sapiens* last year, and he talks about how like there's a, all over the world you look at different like there's there's there was apparently before we kind of distilled down to just Homo sapiens there was a large population of Neanderthals, and they they're kind of eventually it sounds it seems like modern Homo sapiens have like a certain amount of neanderthal dna because they interbreeded for a while right, right and which tells you right right off the bat by very definition of the species they were human 
If you right. can breed and have fertile offspring, you are the same species. Yeah. So obviously they bred and had offspring. <laughs> there's there's really nothing about Neanderthals that is not human. Yep. Let's put it that way. Um, but other other common fossils like Lucy, uh, the the most the most well known one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by far and away the the most famous. Well, when um, when they talk about that fossil, you'll notice they focus heavily on the knee. Uh, and I may, I did make a mistake on this in my original complete creation series. In okay. fact, a lot of, uh, creations made the same mistake years ago, but I have to lay the blame for this at the feet of Don Johansson, the guy who just, dis who discovered Lucy and popularized her because whenever he talks about the Lucy skeleton and talks about Lucy's knee, mm -hmm. he's not referring to that knee joint that was found with the skeleton. Okay. He's referring to a knee that was found two kilometers away and uh, about 200 feet, or I think it was about 60 meters deeper. Deeper, okay, wow. Under, uh, stratigraphically speaking. Now, he compared the two knees, and he might be right. They may be the same, very similar knees. But if you ever watch the Nova, Nova PBS special, um, he, uh, they got uh, Owen Lovejoy on there, who is an anatomist. And he says right on there, he says, when Don brought the Hadar knee over to my house, he laid it out on the living room floor, and I knew instantly that was a human knee. I totally agree with him. Right. Totally agree. So that they've done is they've taken bones which were scattered over a pretty big area. I mean, we only see these nice pretty pictures of uh, the skeleton, but I mean, those bones were scattered all over the place. Right. Uh, over a pretty large area. And uh, so what they've done is they've got eight bones in there. They've got human bones. They've mixed them all together and basically made a, uh, there's a word for a chimera it. Or Thank you. That's the word. That's the word. That's exactly the word. You're reading my mind again. Stop that. <laughs> what else are you reading in there? Yes, a chimera. Uh, so they made literally, it is a half ape, half human. Uh, and in fact, what I'll be talking about. Um, so this is supposedly the same kind of deal as whatever uh charles dawson was doing except what dawson did was deliberate right okay this this, this is more is, likely they were just trying to do it and they made some this mistakes. is just this is just bias uh they go on the assumption that there was no humans at that time because humans had not yet evolved that's their that's the foundation of their belief their research their study so of course it has to belong to lucy it can't be a human need even though so Owen this is just said it was where where can we find is there anything Evan can kind of look up to to find the people that are talking about this who have sort of proved that it's an ape bone not a human bone oh um no uh I was actually well except of course you can hear it straight from the horse's mouth uh Owen Lovejoy himself and Don Johansson because they used that argument to say that Lucy rocked upright. Rocked up, walked upright. Yes, okay. walked upright. Yes, my accent is getting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now here's the catch: every single one, and I didn't notice this until uh, uh, Chris Roop and Jonathan or John. I've forgotten his name. He's a geneticist. Okay, this is horrible. Uh, they just came up with an excellent book uh, recently. Uh, Bones. Uh, not bones of contention, contested bones. Okay. 
Uh, oh, interesting. That would probably be a good book to, to read to get deeper he, into this. Uh, John Sanford, that was okay. it. Um, that's horrible. I forgot his but, name. And <laughs> this guy is coming at it from a creationist perspective or a yes, evolution? Yes, but the way they did this, the way they addressed it in the book, which was exceptionally well-written and well-researched, uh, they pointed out some things, for instance, that, uh, I mean, I, I've read up on this for decades, literally, and I it just all went completely over my head. I never even saw it until they pointed it out. Every single one of the major evolutionary uh, researchers over in Africa, mm -hmm. uh, when they were digging up all these bones of our alleged half-ape, half-human ancestors, mm -hmm. every single one of them, and it's usually right there in the abstract of the paper, they found bones of humans at every single one of those sites, and they all reported it. Mm -hmm. I never even saw that before. And so the one of the most common questions you will get uh, or we get as creationists is where's all the human bones? And it's a good question. Um, well, there's one, <laughs> you know, I mean, how many of those bones, those human bones that they called human, mm -hmm. how many of those we, we never heard about? They don't talk about them. Well, uh, are, are they categorically saying human is in like sapiens or like transitional forms of sapiens? Uh, well, they, it, one, the moment they put that homo in front of it, homo sapiens, homo neanderthalensis, okay. whatever, um, you're, you're basically saying it's human. Right, so it's, right. It's, class, it's the class of homo. Right. And, um, you, you know. Well, what's the, the, the supposed, like within the evolutionary model, the oldest um, common ancestor between uh, humans and, and apes is, what's it called again? Something like. Mm, th that would be arguable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that would depend on who you asked. I, I think there's a pretty pretty common one that I, I've heard. I'm just trying to see. So this is a, what do we see here? Apes, monkeys. Like our, our closest ones now are supposedly like silverbacks, apes, bonobos. Uh, the chimpanzee is pretty much the one they point Yeah, chimps. To. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I skipped chimps. Typically. Closest gas station, yeah. Closest gas station between <laughs> humans and apes. <laughs> okay, ever since researchers sequenced the chimp genome in 2005, they've known that humans share about 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees, making them our closest living relatives. Okay. I mean, as far as closest that's, currently existing. That's a patently false statement, but hey, go okay. with it. <laughs> so unpack that for me. So why? why so chimpanzee genome, okay, so the, the DNA is made up of, you know, base pairs. Right. Uh, the ACTG. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, the chimpanzee genome is about twelve percent longer than the human DNA. Okay. So how can they be ninety nine percent identical? The you got a serious math problem there. Is longer than the human. <laughs> so it's that much longer. Yeah, I'm not really sure how how how. DNA structure works that that well. So if it's well, twelve percent longer, it, it can't be ninety nine percent the same. Like because is it, yeah, isn't there a lot of repetition in, in genetic like yes and no information? But but what they're saying is that they're ninety nine percent identical. Mm -hmm. It can't be because they're twelve percent different. Well, they're twelve percent different in size, but yes. But couldn't you have again? Couldn't you have the same repetitions within that additional? Basically, like, no. What okay. what what they're what they're if you take a look at it. Uh, for instance, they'll they'll compare specific uh, gene sets between chimp and human, but the or specific chromosomes. Sorry, uh, 
the catch is they'll have a gene here in the chimp genome and in a completely different spot in the human genome. And they will, uh, how can I put this, transpose them? Um, if you actually look at a map where you see the connections between them, they are absolutely all over the place. Okay. So they, in order to, I mean, this, this, the figure most commonly cited is about 96%. Okay, that's uh, what similar. I just saw in another article he just brought up there. Yeah, typically it's 96% okay. is what they say. Does that uh, make sense of the 12% difference then, potentially? No. 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 Uh, and, that, and, and how they got to that, it was a very old, a very archaic test, and the number just kind of stuck. Uh, and it's still, and again, this is a popular, popular science reference. Right. It's not, um, well, it's just... Simple. It's just pop it's science, simple. okay. And simple math. You can't right. you can't have ninety nine percent identical. You just can't. Uh, you know the like maybe how to find twelve percent difference Yeah, it was uh if you take a look, boy, it's been a couple of years since I looked this up, because the, the genomes were both made public. Okay. And so you can actually see a base pair count. And uh, because they because they have the DNA length. Now the other catch that uh, Dr. Sanford that we mentioned a moment ago, his his expertise is genetics. He's a geneticist, okay, yeah. right? Uh, him and uh, several others have pointed out uh, the uh, the chimpanzee genome. To get that genome, they used the human DNA as a scaffold, so to say. They went on the assumption that humans and chimpanzees are uh, most similar genetically. So therefore, we're going to, because you can only isolate chunks of the DNA at a time. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they then took the chimpanzee genome, assumed it was very similar to human DNA, and built it, oh, sorry, uh, built it and strung it end to end using the human DNA as a pattern. So there's a bias built in that way. Okay. The other problem they discovered afterwards is that uh, it's near impossible to keep human DNA samples out of all this because you're running it through PCR, which everybody, right, okay. everybody's which heard I mean, about now yeah. because of the whole COVID thing and polymer, polymerase chain reaction. It's a, it's a method of amplifying DNA Okay, is what it is. It's like, you're, yeah, you're going to have your own DNA in there. Yeah. Cause I'm, I've heard claims even people say stuff like that... Um, humans share like really, really high percentage of DNA, even with like leaves or things like, or banana or some, it, stuff it like that too. It depends on how you... How I, you string I, it together, how you, how you bias it. How, and how you look at it, yep. Right, Cause, okay. Because I, in fact, I, uh, in one of my creation evolution rants, uh, I talked about that right. number and I, I cited that very right. example Which you, you mentioned. From what perspective, it kind of makes sense that they would have to be if you're going to, turn a banana into a human by eating it, right? I suppose, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you, at least 50% or 60% of that banana needs to be similar enough to you genetically or, like, as far yeah. as the makeup of it, if you're going to literally incorporate it into your body. Yeah, and I can't remember... Well, I mean, if you don't look at it that way, we've only got four base pairs to choose from. Right. So you're right. going to be right off There's the bat. There's pretty similarity 25. between a lot of living yeah, things, you, right? You so, so the number percentage thing is kind of just a lost cause. It's it, not, not it, an important it conversation is. to have. It is. I, I, when I did that creation evolution rant on uh, the, similar, the genetic similarity between humans and chimps, I actually cited multiple evolutionists who, who had argued 
uh, about the similarity between humans and bananas. Right. I could not find a reference, technical reference anywhere for that right. number. So I cited it, but to be honest, I'm okay. not even sure it exists. I think Evan just had <laughs> had sixty percent there. That's what that's, that's this business insider. Yeah. Pop so I mean, business has. insider. Clearly, yeah. they know, <laughs> they know all. They about know genetics. their stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I was never I was never able to find a reference. Right. So. Yes, yeah. yeah, sir. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't even I forgot about this feature. Google scholar.google.com. <laughs> there we go. Evan's a real, uh, real smart boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Protecting genetic diversity and diploid bananas. Okay. You're looking for like scholarly articles when you do scholar.google. Yeah. That, that's a, this, this is a neat a feature to have. To have. I didn't realize I had this so handy. This would take a while to weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we have time to do that. But um, so you said, I mean, that one of the things people point to is that, or, or oh no, we were kind of on on skeletons here. We we're talking about yes, fossils and stuff like that. Yes. So there so are look, none that you find even sort of like uh, difficult to process or like kind of trip you up at all. It's like okay, all that seems like it's just faked. It's well, and and that it's not it's not that it's faked, or at least just it's, biased. It's in how it's interpreted. Okay. Yeah, let's put it that way. Um, because I could appreciate that perspective a little bit more because the idea that just literally everybody else is a, a part of a conspiracy to try to suppress creationism <laughs> seems that just seems unlikely to me. I, I think most conspiracies of that type where it's just like thinking that there's because I mean, we can't even get, you know, <laughs> we can't even get a, a community of Christians who supposedly should have community figured out better than, than other cultures right. to, 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 you know, to cooperate and, and, and believe each other and trust each other well enough, even in sort of close proximity. How do you get a mm -hmm. bunch of people who are not that connected to each other and don't have any sort of uh, incentive to to care about what each other thinks other than, like, I mean, how do you get them to cooperate and, like, suppress knowledge intentionally? Like, that's a right, right. organizational feat, right. especially to do it for a long time. Like, mm -hmm. that's that would be crazy. It has to be something a little bit more more sneaky than that where it just kind of sneaks into our biases and what, what seems like, what seems yeah. to be true Yeah, from and certain... And uh, as as a few have mentioned, a few evolutionists have mentioned, um, the the popular science can be really unintentionally harmful in that regard because it propagates a lot of things like that right. Ascent of Man picture, um, which even Stephen Jay Gould went on record saying, you know, this doesn't, this is not an accurate depiction. Right, but I mean, you have to sort of sacrifice accuracy for simplicity or like narrative simplicity. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you, you even if you talk about the way um, the model of an atom is usually represented in a science book, it's like that's Which totally may or may not be right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, as far as I think, it's like basically like it's it's intentionally way off, but it's just like in, it's a very simplified like this. These are not the patterns that the that the electrons spin around the neutrons and the protons. This is just like, right, right, right. This is, this is like a, sim a really simplistic way of kind of understanding generally how it works, right? right. But it's like, it, if, if you were to, if, if you wanted to be accurate, the distance between those electrons and the neutrons for you to be able to see the electrons, you end up having to have a picture that takes up like a football field because the electrons right, right. are so far away from the neutrons to still, if you yep. still want to see the electron and have it be the big sizes of, of a pinhead or whatever, yes. it's like, that just, it doesn't work. So you have to like, it's, it's not, is it a lie to sort of rep, kind of throw off accuracy for representational right. and that's, and that's comprehension? Not, yeah, and that's not what I'm what I'm saying either. But at the same time, how many people have been convinced of evolution by that simple picture? Uh, because it's it's depicted as fact, right? And when when <coughs> you know 
evolutionists like Stephen Jay Gould have to go on record and say, no, it's not. Right. So, well, but like it, it might just be people sort of approaching our, our, our relationship to facts a little bit wrong. Like the way that you make a statement about reality is always you sort of compress it to an appropriate narrative level where people can understand what you're saying. Right. Like if, if you try to be like exhaustively detailed in your definitions, even of the word you're trying to say in a sentence, you can spend years yep. trying to be so specific so people know exactly what you're saying. But it's like, it's not a lie not to do that, is it? No, no. Um, but what winds up happening is it winds up in not just popular science, but textbooks as well. Right. Now science teachers are teaching it as a fact, showing this, and it is a real nice picture. It's very simple and, yeah. you know, it, it shows the But doesn't effect. it represent a more or less the scientific consensus as far as like, you know, where a lot of people that are working on the theory of evolution, they think that this is the case and so they're not, they're just trying to represent it simply. That is, that's a lot more accurate than I think a lot of people would realize. Basically, I don't want to call it. I don't want to call it wishful thinking because that's not. Even though one evolutionist I know of used that term, uh, <laughs> that's that's not that's not the the term I'm using or I, the term I want to use. Um, see, I lost my train of thought again. Man, we had to do this today. I'm exhausted now. <laughs> I'm sorry to catch you after yes, <laughs> a crazy crazy two days of oh, your car breaking and everything. Yes, and I'm. Just my brain is baked tonight. But anyway. so you're, you're. I mean, we're trying to talk about how to understand what facts are and, and how to understand. Like yes. these people are, are representing. You know, this this is not a very good, or at least not a very accurate, not a very detailed. But I'm I'm kind of saying I'm not sure if that's necessarily a problem, especially mm -hmm. if it's sort of because it's it's not. I, I don't think the intent there behind that picture is is to like give an exhaustive representation of exactly Correct. what happens. Just it's supposed to give you sort of a gist. Correct. Right. But how many people know that? Well, I mean, but this is a really general problem with just how we interact with truth and, and, and theories in general. I mean, I, I think this this problem exists all the way up and down our experience with almost every discipline. Yes, and I mean that just is a is a tendency towards non humility when 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 interacting with any discipline or any science yeah, or any information. And, and, and unfortunately, in this day and age of fake news, I mean, I mean, <laughs> th th this was kind of before your time, but I mean, uh, Mel Brooks, you know, Moses comes out, I present to you the 15 commandments and he drops one of the tablets, the Prep, 10 the commandments, ten. <laughs> you know, and how and a, a bunch of people believe that was through <laughs> history. It's like, so you can't win for losing. I mean, <laughs> right. So, but, but coming back to this with, uh, because again, uh, all the major players in evolutionary scholars, were reporting finding fossil humans at these sites. Um, and again, coming back to this very common question, where's all the human fossils? Um, there's, uh, and I kind of wish I'd known we were going in this direction. I would have brought some of this place, right. but, that, uh, but that also requires organizational skills. And <laughs> the Lord gifted me with many gifts and callings and skills, but organization was not one of them. So, uh, but uh, I've, uh, replica, fossil replica I just recently got was one of the uh, women of Gua Guadalupe. Uh, so okay. Guadalupe Island. And there was multiple, uh, yeah, they call, it, they call it Lady of Guadalupe. If you know how to spell Guadalupe. <laughs> uh, you know how to spell of. Yeah. <laughs> Lady of Guadalupe. Okay. Uh, nope, not that one. Maybe Lady of Guadalupe fossil? Yes. Okay. 
Is there that, it is. Oh, okay. There it is. So Mystery of the Guadalupe icon. Woman. Or that okay. one there. Yeah. So, yeah, the bad archaeology. I love it. Uh, so I have a cast of that skeleton now. So basically okay. this was in rocks that were far too old for humans to have evolved at that point. Okay. If I recall, it was uh, 12 Can you bring up the website, Evan, the bad archaeology website that's there? You are just there a second ago. Go back to the images. I'm, I'm, maybe try, try to thumb through that article because I wonder what, what that has to say about this conversation too. So John Mackay, who is an Australian, he's a geologist. Mm-hmm. Um, there, so basically, this goes back a ways. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Bill, was after the flood, I've forgotten his last name. He wrote this book and he spent a pile of time in the basement of the uh, British Museum of Natural History. Okay. Where that skeleton was on display for some 50 years in the okay. British Museum. Uh, but it's in the wrong place from an evolutionary perspective. It okay. should not be there. It, the rock is too old, according to them. So that skeleton, basically, uh, uh, Bill just said, you know, here's this skeleton here. He showed photographs of it and talked about it in his book, Cooper, Bill Cooper. Um, and uh, so he publicized this in his book after the flood. And there was a bit of a firestorm because then um, Chris Stringer, the the uh, curator of the museum at the time, they they hauled out the, the skeleton and said, look, here, we're not hiding it, you know, and uh, raised a bit of a ruckus. He, was, he took it quite personally, the suggestion that, you know, they were hiding fossils in the basement, um, even though... <laughs> Really, they were. They weren't, you know, they weren't talking about right. this, nothing, you know. Um, and they only brought it out because Bill Cooper publicized it. Okay. So what became of that, uh, there was a lot of, they they ha- really hassled Bill Cooper over this. So John Mackay decides, well, let's settle this issue. So he goes to the island of Guadalupe and he uh, conducts a geologic survey because surprise, surprise, the whole island was geologically surveyed except for the location where the skeletons were found. So he traced it back and uh, did a geological survey with everything, comes back and he goes to visit Dr. Stringer, the curator of the British Museum in his office, lays out all the papers, says, here it is, according to the geological uh, time frame, uh, which you guys are proposing, that rock is 12 million years old, which is way too old for modern humans. And uh, Stringer was, he he calmed down a lot after that because he, he basically conceded, okay, yeah, that, that rock, you know, it, it leads to other questions, right? Okay. And John pinned him down and he asked him bluntly, he said, how many, how many human fossils do you know of? And Stringer thought about it for a second. He said, oh, about 30,000 or so. And I don't know about you, but John, myself, when I heard this, my jaw hit the floor. 30,000 human fossils? I haven't heard about these fossils. Nobody's heard about these fossils. Right. Where, where are all these fossils? You know, so I mean, the question is that people so often have, and it is a good question. Where's all the human fossils? That's a really good question. Because, you know, Chris Stringer, one guy talking about knowing about 30,000 of them. That's one guy. Right. So why haven't we heard about these? You know, the Paluxy fossil human footprints would be another classic example. Those are fossil human footprints. We know they're not apes because there is no creature that has a footprint like the human. 
Mm-hmm. Even apes have basically four hands. So. Okay. That's, I, I mean, that's. Yeah, they always say that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, it seems like the bottom of this is that there's, especially, this this conversation got fiery about 200 years ago or so, it seems like, where where it started to be the case. Because, I mean, I, I think before, um, before, like, American Protestantism and the kind of separation of church and state, I think it was generally the, the church's position, like, there wasn't a... a, a hard line separation between like creationism and evolution. It was just like the scientists thought that there was that, you know, that, that, that it believed in evolution and Christians didn't have like a hard line opinion. If they were into science, they were generally into the evolutionary perspective. That actually is very recent. Um, before uh, the advent of Charles Lyell, really. He's okay. he's the one who introduced the whole idea. When is, when is he? Lyell is, is 1800s? Uh, yeah, 1800s, 1800s just, okay. bef- just before Darwin. He was actually okay. uh, one of the inspirations for Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin okay. had his book, uh, his, his uh, book on board the, the Beagle with okay. him. Yep. And he read it. And he was inspired uh, by this. Now, the present is the key to the past. Yes. Yeah. Epistemological framework is yeah. and that everything's consistent. And it's it's a fascinating study. I mean, uh, my first complete creation series. I spent the first, I think, four or five parts just on that topic, right? Because to me, Charles Lyell was more important than Charles Darwin, okay? Because he was the one that convinced countless numbers of people that the Bible could not be true, and it was how he did it, mm-hmm. uh, which he secretly admitted in writing. Um, to uh, in private correspondence, which right. we only found out about after he died, right? Because his sister published his letters and correspondence. Okay, so that's the only reason we even know what was going through his mind is because he mm-hmm. was trained as a lawyer, right. and so he put his legal argumentation training to work, and he had an interest in geology. So, but he wanted to refute Noah's flood, and he wanted to replace it with deep time. So he was basically the inventor of millions and billions of years. And he specifically came up with that to explain away the evidence left behind by the worldwide flood. Which, okay, I, I, I haven't heard that before, that that he was the first one to, I mean, I, I as far as, I mean, I was watching some of your, your early lectures about this guy and, and that he kind of made this statement. But I from... I forget where where the other sources where I was reading about this, but just like I, I was under the un- impression that like in general there wasn't there wasn't this hardline debate before around that time, and like there was a kind of a growing um, like Lyell was literally the first one to talk about you know an, an Earth older than six thousand or ten thousand years old. Yep, and he did it without ever mentioning the Bible. So basically, he refuted the Bible. And that yeah, was see, his, if you, see if you can look this one up because th- this that just doesn't sound right to me. Like the first person to believe in old Earth or first references to no, he wasn't the first to believe in an old Earth. He was the he was the first to popularize it and okay. the first to replace the evidence of Noah's flood with deep time. 
Okay, which so, is so what what sold everybody basically. So let's maybe let's talk about the flood a little bit because, mm-hmm. so you believe like in a, in us in a you know a global flood where the entire globe gets yep. covered in water. Where did all the water go? Well, that's I mean I don't know, that's the first thing that I could think of as far as like because it, it seems like okay if if there was enough water to cover the entire globe then did it just sort of I mean unless the sort of the, there used to be a lot more land mass and it sort of gathered together into smaller. Basically, that's that is the short answer. Basically, the water's in the oceans. Right is is yeah. where is where all the water went. Now, how that happened, um, personally, I'm uh, that 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 is arguable. Uh, but basically, the continents um, were squished horizontally and grew vertically as a result. And so basically what happens is this displaces the water. The water goes off into... Yeah, yeah. I mean, new... uh, physically that can that kind of makes sense to me. Um, and there's sort of evidence for the them changing shape that much because that seems like that well, would be a pretty crazy... Uh, not so much changing that much, but moving around a lot. Um, well, I mean, yeah, there's sort of Pangea theory and, and then um, tectonic plates and all that. Yeah, which is a biblical idea that actually okay. came from the Bible. Um, really? Yeah, it was uh, because... Um, I've forgotten his name right now. Oh, I should have okay. drank two five-hour before this. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, it was before the idea of plate tectonics. Okay. Because uh, th- those two guys, um, yeah, do that, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, is it to do with like Genesis and how all these rivers, you know, apparently you used to meet together, like the Tigris, um, Euphrates, um, all that? Right, no, it was before that because basically... Uh, it, when you f- refer back to Genesis, it uh, it says God collect God had all the land, uh, or sorry, gathered the waters together into one place. Okay, is what it said. So this, uh, I believe he was French, and I've totally forgotten his name. Sorry, oh, I that's gonna, more names that's today gonna than keep I am. me. That's gonna keep <laughs> me awake tonight. Now, um, so basically, he looked at that and and deduced well. If the water was gathered into one place, then that means the land was gathered into one place. And so that's when he started playing around with the fit of continents, uh, trying to figure out, because they're they're not all in one place now. So he was simply looking at this and trying to, uh, yeah, no, not Alfred Wegener, Antonio Snyder Pellegrini. That sounds Italian. Yeah, something like that. French, Italian. Oh, he was French, but okay, that sounds Italian. I Brazilian, I don't know. Yeah, okay. It's all the same. The French. Oh, <laughs> well, somewhere in Europe. In, in fact, if you click on that, I'm sure it'll even have his first, uh, oh yeah, he's a French geographer. Sorry, if you want to hit the camera again, I think it went out. And that is his famous drawing right there. Famous, oh, his drawing, okay. So he's the one who sort of started theorizing about them all being put together before it was called Pangea. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and so basically Wegener and his partner Interesting. took that well, I mean, idea. Yeah, before before we had this hard line split between sort of the scientific institution and Christianity, which I'm still not exactly sure why that happened so so violently, but before that it was just like a lot of people were, were the reason they even did science was, was like there was a philosophical, or sorry, like a theological drive to like, I mean, it was like theology drove everything. It's like yep. now now there's this weird kind of, pretense that we do like that science just wants us to get more science so that way we can keep getting more science and understanding science better yeah and and i'm i'm all for that because i mean i well 
You know how it is. I love science. Well, I mean, but <laughs> so. that 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 loop, that feedback loop, doesn't make sense to me because science. I mean, even as you kind of pointed out, well, science is a tool, right? <laughs> so science doesn't sort of lead you anywhere. It doesn't tell you what to do with it. It just says, you know, it's just it's just cool, right? It's just well, but, but why is it cool, right? That that's <laughs> that's a interesting thing to point to. Is like, so what? Is, what's coolness? It's like yeah, there's something I that like it's like it leads us toward i mean cool that that is a really catch-all general phrase that has yeah. to do with like a mysterious sense of like what you're drawn to so i mean yeah, I, I, I would be like discovery i guess right and like so. i i mean I, and i like this sort of more mystical um scientific talkers like sagan who like who end up using this sort of very very um you know romantic language for like the discovery of science and where science is ultimately leading towards like truth right. i don't even know if he ever does truth with a capital t but like Ultimately, yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's what that's what science sort of ought to be. It's it's a tool to help us grapple with the true nature of reality, which like, right, right, to me would be like ultimately heading towards the like God behind reality, or at, at the bottom, or the top, or all within reality. Right, right. Like there, there's a, there's a drive towards something that's meaningful, mm -hmm. and like just doing science for the sake of science or for the sake of your job to make money is like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sooner or later, you you realize sort of your your life. I mean, just just making money is not that meaningful. It's like you, you want to be driven beyond by something beyond that. And so then, like, okay, well, is it just science for the sake of science? But then you just get a bigger and bigger tool asking you what to do with the tool, right? Right. And so there right, has right. to be sort of something driving behind that. And like up to a certain point, it was just it was clearly Christianity. Now I think it's it's sort of a more masked version of like still Christian values and the the. This desire for God, but like, there's too much. Maybe there's too much baggage on Christian um, creeds and cre Christian. Uh, what would you say? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like do dogma. Oh yes, the, the Christian dogma is something a lot of people struggle with. I mean, and there and there is a lot of sort of social and historical baggage attached to the dogmas of Christianity. Right. So like, I can see why some people want to kind of scoot around that and just use more more romantic mystical language to talk about the truth they're looking for because right, right. I, th I think within Christianity we have kind of I think I think we struggle to, to maintain a relationship with with the unknownness of God very well right right we want to like I mean in the same way we had this sort of representation of the the potent of the uh, like the evolutionary chain of like ape to man people can get caught up in that and, and just be like oh well that's that's what it is it's like it's simple as that and I understand that that's the fact it's like we similarly do that to talk about God and to talk about truth. And we have kind of a, a just a simple model to try to get the gist of it. And we look to that model and say, well, that's, that's what God is. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not what God is. Right? <laughs> right, right. There has to be a relationship to the unknown to properly engage with these things. So I know that's kind of a bit of a tangent, but, um, tangents are okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> but like th this is a fundamental problem of doing any sort of truth seeking or epistemology is that you you always have a, a what did I say before something bias uh, confirmation oh, bias oh, right? Okay, right which and that's what you were pointing to is that if you're bought into an evolutionary model you you approach truth or you approach science with that bias and as a creationist we do that too because there's there's no way to sort of like deal with new facts without plugging them into sort of a story about reality. Yes, and I, I'm trying to remember the exact quote that Gary Parker would always say, 
but it was it was uh we're all biased and you want to you need to know which bias is the correct bias to be biased with right but uh, i don't think that's totally possible yeah um I, like i think that's part of why it's like even within christian theology is like it's it's so important to be relational with our seeking right. of truth and seeking of god it's like that's why like the church is is a fundamental part of christianity is like you, you don't get to know what what's the right bias you have to constantly be renegotiating that with the whole rest of the body right right <laughs> I, I mean that that's important but like so it's important that we understand we have a bias and it's important that we are humble enough to kind of work through our biases together right but mm-hmm. so how do you i mean plugging that back into this conversation I mean, you're pointing to that there's a bias when when looking at things from an evolutionary perspective and there's one from a creationist perspective too how how much of how much of that bias explains away the the create the evidence that supports the creation model as well like um, you'll notice that in the case of the hominid fossils, the half ape, half human, okay. um, okay, I focused, hominid. I focused heavily and I still focus heavily on quoting the evolutionists and what they say. Okay. Um, so I'm simply agreeing with them. <laughs> it's, it's the better part of what I'm doing there. Right. Right. Um, and when it comes to the creationary stuff, it's in, in general, I'm thinking, um, because they're all, how can I put this? They're all very little, small, specific clusters of a debate. What, you know, the, the, the model of Noah's flood, what caused the flood? How, why did the flood stop? Mm -hmm. Uh, where did all the water come from? Where did it go? Um, there's, you know, a number of models, each of which has their strengths and weaknesses. Right. Um, so uh, even the evolutionary Pangea models, they have yeah. their strengths and weaknesses, every right. single one of them. Right, and there's um, a whole bunch, right? I, I think we should we should yeah. also make sure that we kind of, in general, are not looping or lumping together just like, I mean, we're, we're trying to do a, trying to keep this conversation manageable too by, by having a general category for evolutionary theory and creationist yes. theory. Both of these things, there's a lot more nuance to the conversations that are happening, happening in those too. Yeah, and it's... Like it's not a uniform theory of evolution, or even a uniform theory of creation. Whereas right. like there's a ton of noise, a ton of conversation yeah. and a ton of like nuances. Nuances. Nuance, I'm looking but for. also probably <laughs> disagreements. Like there's yep. there's a lot of conflicting models within these things. And so it's difficult yep. to yep. to get a bottom line. <laughs> yep. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of creationists uh reject the Biloxi fossil footprints. Okay. Uh that's that's something I've spent a great deal of time studying. I've been in I've spent a lot of hours in the Biloxi River. Um and and examining the footprints in place, I've been to multiple excavations. Uh, I've studied a lot of these footprints, developed some of the yeah. the techniques for studying the footprints, um, which very quickly went by the way of the dodo bird with new technology. Uh, but but the you know the the principle is there anyway. Uh, you know, so I mean, I can I can address all those objections. But that doesn't mean that there isn't people out there who disagree with me or think I'm wrong. So okay. Well, as I was wondering, even too is so within, yeah. To, to focus on even the the place where and the the fossils you spend a lot of your time like working on. You said the Paluxy River. I don't yep. know if you can even pull that up too. But um, are you working mostly with people who are you know are looking at it things from a similar perspective, like a creation model, and having dialogue with them, or is the, is there some kind of interplay between? 
like because uh, if if this is as extraordinary of evidence for creation as you're saying it is, I w- I would imagine that either there would be a lot of uh, evolutionary ar- archaeologists out there sort of trying to disprove the evidence or like just ignoring it. So what's happening there it's, with the relationship between the different it's mostly, communities? Mostly, mostly, mostly ignoring it, but yeah. primarily, almost all of them point to the research of one guy um, and basically say, well, he said that they're just elongated dinosaur tracks. Um, Elongated? Yes. Uh, So basically a dinosaur was walking on its heels. And so this left a human, vaguely human looking uh, shaped, uh, human footprint shaped looking impression in the mud. Okay. This article is called, says the Paluxy River, the creationist built. Yes. (laughs) National Center of Science Eradication. Yes. My, one of my favorite groups. Uh, <laughs> science eradication. <laughs> yes. Okay, it uh, says science education there. Yes. And uh, and they'll, they'll all quote the same guys anyway and the same arguments. Um, okay. Now, the, these guys will be a little more uh, careful because uh, to the credit, at least they tend to stick to, they do their homework at least. Right. and they, they care about it. Yeah, yeah. They don't uh, because nine times out of 10, when uh, someone argues against the Paloxy River tracks, they say they're all carvings. They're carvings. Yes, they're they're, they're faked. That's that's the number one okay. argument. Now, anybody who has been to any of the excavations will know that that is an absolutely absurd argument, okay. because there there's public excavations that have been going on for decades. Right. You and they can keep go finding down, new ones. Yeah, and it, it, they're they're uncovering these underneath. You know anywhere from six to 18 inches of solid limestone. You got to break away the limestone. And I've done a whole pile of that breaking Mm -hmm. up and carrying it away. And then you got to remove the mud layer on top of it to get to the tracks. Um, How are the carvings? It's absurd. Right. Um, But yet. Do you even uncover these things like footprints yourself? Yes. Now, now I haven't uncovered, I haven't had the privilege of uncovering a human one yet. Okay. But dinosaur ones. uh, Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, but I, uh, I have, because it's actually illegal to remove the tracks from the riverbed now. Okay. Um, so there, so the human footprints, which have been found, almost all of them are still in the riverbed. So they get eroded over time, which is actually a, a very important point right. because That's... when you go and look at the trails, the dinosaur footprints erode radically different than the human footprints. Okay. So they're not the same track. Because uh, sometimes the human footprints are inside the dinosaur track, or sometimes the dinosaur track is on top of the human footprint. Okay. So there was some one walked in the mud, and then later a second one walked. Uh, and how are there like dinosaur bones nearby to be certain that these are dinosaur um, tracks? In that particular case, that's there's only uh, see dinosaur tracks can be quite common. Yeah. But they are almost never found with dinosaur bones. Okay. So. Uh, and the Paluxy happens to be one of the rare places in the world where there was dinosaur bones found. Okay. Uh, with and what kind of dinosaurs are you talking about? Like, because I I know uh, like some of the later uh, dinosaurs are potentially like these large like bird type dinosaurs. I mean, it seems to go like there's the the model is is that. Sorry, I'm trying trying to make sure that I, I'm, we're having this in good faith, and I'm not just yep. trying to throw out the creationist perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, from the evolutionary model, it's like it's like lizard type dinosaur dragon things and then eventually very large bird type things and then chickens 
eventually. Right, right. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. There we go. Yeah. Uh, in that case, it was uh, Acrocanthosaurus. Okay. Uh, and that was, again... Can you look that up? I want, I want to see what that looks like. Acro... Can you, how do you spell that? Acrocan... Acro... A-C-R-O-C-A-N... Oh, wow. It was down there. Okay. So this is sort of a, a semi-bird looking thing, or at least it stands up and walks, but this is huge looking. Yes. Okay. They can be quite big. Okay. But it, it likely still had scales, not feathers. Yeah. And that whole feather debate, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I, I don't have a problem with feathers on a dinosaur. Yeah. Um, I mean, do I have a problem sure. with a duck bill on a duck, on a duck bill platypus? Yeah. You know, no. <laughs> so, right. you know, uh, why not? Um, but the, the whole, unfortunately, the whole argumentation over the, the feathers on dinosaurs has in itself become almost a religion, mm -hmm. um, where they look under, a under, a, a, mic a microscope mm -hmm. and they see hairs and they call those proto feathers. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they call them proto feathers. One of they the actually find like, like, uh, close to living enough models that they can see these hairs on them like yes yeah, some, like of, them, some of them are that well preserved yes wow yeah uh, that's that's so nuts to think about yes <laughs> yes i've i've gotten to study a few myself um in in person and it's pretty they're pretty stunning okay. um but the one of the things they'll point out for example is you know well they're these hairs are hollow so they're proto feathers they're you know it's trying to evolve feathers because it's okay. like a, the quill of a, mm -hmm. a feather Okay, fair right. enough argument. Which is weird. I, I wouldn't understand the advantage of like, well, I guess, okay, hair over, um, especially if your eyes, you can only really see in one direction pretty well and you're pretty big, hair would be helpful because it, it becomes another indicator for predators or anything around you, even even parasites. You can sense them more quickly. So I, right, maybe there right. would be an advantage there. That kind of makes sense. Right, right. Well, and in, in that case, they're, they were leaning heavily like these hairs are hollow. So they must be proto proto feathers. Right, okay, uh, but the thing is, there's multiple animals today that have hollow feathers, and in fact, it's a seasonal thing. Uh, polar bears, for example, in the summer will have a non-hollow fur, and I've actually got photographs of polar bear fur un that I took under a microscope. I got it from the uh, in Cochrane. I mm -hmm. got some polar bear hair samples, and I actually snipped one of them and put it under the microscope to take a look at it. And in the wintertime, their hair is hollow. Interesting. Uh, moose as well, caribou as well. Did, do we know our reason for that? Like, is it to somehow, to, is it an insulation thing or? Uh, it must be. I'm, I'm honestly not sure, but it's a seasonal thing. Okay. So, and the, the emphasis there might, would be that perhaps this dinosaur is not evolving feathers. It's simply got a winter coat of fur. Right. Okay. So that changes the argument radically. Well, so it doesn't sound like it necessarily is here or there. Just like okay, yeah. I mean, for, for for evolution to work, it always has to be like there has to be either uh, an advantage enough to spend your sort of your biological resources on on this change, or at least not damaging enough that uh, that you deviate away from it. That it ends up being right. a problem, right? So it, it's just like initially there'd be sort of a random mutation that we end up having it, and if there's some sort of positive ends up being some, somewhat pragmatic then it sticks around but then yeah it's interesting to try I mean trying to understand this step to this step to this step it's like any any evolutionary sort of plot of like this to this to this 
always is missing a whole bunch of steps, especially because you're looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of generations. Right. Which is, so it's like, it's, you got to do a lot of gap filling in. So, and I, and I think even, I mean, obviously from an evolutionary science perspective, that's, that's an assumption that you are doing that and you're, you're sort of generalizing, you're filling in the gaps in a, in a, in a huge way. And so like, there's a high percentage that you're like, like, I mean, you just give your, your best guess and then until somebody else has a better guess, we go with your best guess. Yeah. Unless we can sort of <laughs> falsify it. And, and it's like, if you're sort of, I don't know, like, I, I'm not super uncomfortable with that sort of thinking as long as just, as long as everybody's sort of on the same page about, you know, how we're doing science. Although, I mean, I can't say I'm, we're doing science. You're actually doing <laughs> science. <laughs> but, well, except asking questions is doing the science too. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> to be, to be fair. Because, I mean, that's an important and critical part. Right. You know, you, you got to ask the question. If, if, and in fact, uh, John Mackay does this routinely, and it's an excellent question. If creation were true, what would the evidence be? Right. You know, we, we always, you know, we always think about, you know, if evolu- evolution were true, what yeah. would the evidence be? We're all taught that. I was taught that. Yeah. You know, but nobody ever asks, if creation were true, what would the evidence be? Yeah, and so one one of the things he points out is uh, the fossil record. What yeah. do we see in the fossil record? Stasis and extinction, neither of which help evolution at all. Stasis is no change, right? And so evolution is more of just a like. And and what I said as far as before about evolutionary theory, like the evidence seemed seemed interesting, seemed compelling to me. I I probably used the wrong word. Evidence is too much of a scientific word. I, what I meant is more. The narrative or the movement, the, the the story that it helps me to th- kind of think about reality and the general gist of reality, I found that helpful. It's like okay, that 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 sort of makes sense. Like you talked about, you know, in the selfish gene, talked about small, you know, examples of evolution, and obviously there are there are examples you can watch of like cells evolving to like become uh, resistant to different types of poisons. You can literally watch these and you can look at look at pictures of it. It's really really cool to look at. Um, so obviously it's like okay, that that's a really compelling story about how we adapt to change and it's like okay so we have certain people claiming that the earth is and the universe is this old so how did we get here well let's try and use use the most interesting and compelling stories we have about the way life works so far to try to tell a story about that right right. and like that doesn't seem to be a a problem to me it's like okay again like people can sort of approach it wrong and look at it as sort of definitive and it's like to some extent i understand that especially for how long uh, it's been sort of the dominant theory in a, in a lot of countries and, and a lot of, for a lot of scientists. So, I mean, part of me would wonder, like, what, why, why wouldn't we have discovered the serious problems with this yet? If I mean, if it's been consensus for so long or, or been the way people are sort of approaching science for so long, wouldn't they start to run into big problems? And obviously, the, there's a lot of conversational avenues we can go down about just like how institutions end up getting corrupted and, and how, how we're doing science at this point and how, how it's difficult to, you know, to maintain I like I love listening to this guy Eric Weinstein talk about in, in general I don't know if you follow this guy at all uh, I, I know the name okay uh, anyway he, he's he's really concerned about a couple of key things he, he, he's he, he's really good at coming up with little catchphrases little little names for things but he has uh, one of his his favorite riffs to go on is he talks about the gin which is the gated institutional narrative which is okay. he just talks about right. how you know, once an institution is formed, it has a, and this is another word he's coined, an ego. It has an embedded growth obligation. Right. 
it, it, but I mean, ego is a good enough word anyways. It's just like once it's big enough, it just it needs to keep feeding itself because it's kind of established this pattern of like, okay, well, we get money and then we do this. And, you know, I got people to pay and I have, I have growth to do. And so like institutions, whether or not they are continue to be useful or not, have an obligation to kind of continue to survive. Right, right. Right, and so that, that can end, end up leading to a lot of problems. And, and so if somebody brings up something that would sort of destabilize one of the core foundational stones of any institution, they want to suppress that or get rid of it or right. try to hide it. So there's... So basically, he just uses fancy words to talk about conspiracy theories. <laughs> yes, basically, yes. But like a, a lot... It's just like... I, I like the way he talks about it because he doesn't talk about it as if it's like one guy... George Soros out there or one guy out there sort of masterminding everything and, and being having a secret puppet hand behind everything and orchestrating it all. It's more just like these are the sort of patterns we fall into as institutions, as people. It's just, and I like using the word ego or pride. It's just pride is a, is a pattern that manifests on, on every level, on the level of the human, on the level of the family, level of the institution. It's like, it makes sense. And so, yeah, you, you see people sort of suppressing it. So, sorry, that was one of the avenues I didn't want to go down. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. But yeah, it's I, I can see that it would be possible for people to kind of get mixed up in in this, but I, I don't feel like whenever you start suppressing information and hiding truth, that usually you end up... Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of just dramatic representations of this pattern in like kids' stories. Like I feel like it's an episode of Arthur. <laughs> it just talks about... I mean, there's so, so many kids' shows that just talk about like, when you tell one lie, the next you have to tell another lie to cover it up. And somebody approaches you on that, you're going to tell another lie. It's like lies snowball and, and eventually your whole structure becomes too unstable to manage and things just fall apart. But that hasn't seemed to have happened with, with the evolutionary institution and people approaching things that way. And I'm wondering why it hasn't happened yet. Because it boils down to human nature. We are in a fallen world. We... Uh, that confirmation bias thing again, mm -hmm. but it's deeper than that. I would say. Um, yeah, I'm willing to, to to sacrifice the heat for some for some cool. Maybe we'll have a little <laughs> bit of, of of sound here, but I think the dynamic mics will do an okay job. You want to turn the air conditioning <laughs> on? <laughs> Sacrificing quality for comfort, but maybe maybe it will lead to more quality content because yes, we'll be less maybe. focused on the <laughs> heat. Okay, so sorry, you're talking about cognitive bias. Yes. Yes, except it's deeper than that because by nature we want to reject uh, we want to reject our we want to reject um, acknowledging our sinful state. I don't know how to put that. It's it's deeper than that. It is confirmation bias. Well, I mean to to put our sinful state into more um I don't know, easy, easier terms for me to follow. Like we, we don't want to, on the same level as sort of the institution doesn't want to destabilize itself with new facts that are going to, that are going to hurt its, its structures. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to have to incorporate that in, into itself. I don't want to have to do that either. Is, right, does right. that, is that a good an analogy as far as our, our sinful state, our, yeah. our potential, our imperfection? Our yes, because, because basically what I, what I've seen happen um, in, in debates in particular. Now, uh, to his credit, while um, I, I think I spent three episodes of Genesis Week just pointing out the glaring errors and fallacies that Bill Nye brought up during the debate with Ken Ham. Mm -hmm. um, to his credit, he at least tried to argue the points. 
mm-hmm. um, while his his arguments were completely invalid. Um, and I appreciated the difference in vibe in that in that interaction compared to like Hitchens, Krauss, Dawkins. All these guys are have just a real uh, stick up their butt when it comes to talking about religion. They're yeah. just really they're they're not yeah. in it for science. They're in it to be anti-religion, and that that yes. seemed to be a that's a problem. You can't really do science if you come with such a negative bias towards your, your and, opponent. And evolution is their religion, is the bottom line. Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, to, to his credit, uh, Bill Nye actually did uh, bring up multiple points. Whether, whether you agree with him or not, he at least brought, brought up arguments. Mm-hmm. Usually when uh, I've, either, I've been in a, in a debate with uh, various evolutionary scholars or evolutionists, they almost never try and bring up scientific facts and data. They, uh, they always uh, incorporate logical fallacies, uh, start attacking me personally. Uh, you know, what's your credentials? That's the most common one, yeah. which has absolutely nothing to do with right. whether what I'm saying is correct or not. Right. Um, which, I mean, I, I forget who... There, there's a lot of scientists that talk about that if, if you want to do science, you don't make appeals to authority. You make appeals correct. to facts. That's another, that's another logical fallacy. It's quite common. Right. Um, oh, battery just died. Okay. <laughs> uh, so if you want to try and set up my phone to, to keep going, so we, we have another camera in case that runs out. All right, keeping you, keeping you working hard today, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we keep going. We, we, we got this guy going, so. Oh, okay, okay. Um, that that is another common logical fallacy. Uh, for instance, they'll they'll bring up in a debate. Well, give me one peer-reviewed article, uh, mm-hmm. which is a appeal to authority. Right. Um, and well, it's an appeal to authority, but it's also an appeal to, like, the shared sense making of a lot of people. Which I, so I partially appreciate that. Like, you, you want to make sure that if you're making a claim, you have your peers review it. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. Well, don't get me started on peer review. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I know there's a, there's a problem within that system as well. But yeah, yeah, at least exactly. fundamentally, like it, it makes sense that you want to try to review sure. things, yeah, among your peers. Yes, uh, the problem is the peers. If you uh, and if you're all bought into an institution together, <laughs> it's because it doesn't become peer review anymore. Now it becomes uh, what's the word? Who's part of the club? <laughs> Close. Uh, the, uh, branding. That's okay. It. it becomes branding. You know, uh, if Nature Magazine says we will only publish peer-reviewed papers that support evolution, all right, that's fair enough. But that has nothing to do with science. That has everything to do with branding. Yeah. So if so, to then turn around and say, well, Nature won't publish creationary content. Mm-hmm. That means creationary science, uh, creation isn't science. Right, but... It's, it's a null. No, if there was a ton of... And, and there should be a ton of evidence to support... Well, I mean, it's like maybe there's just the, the falsifiability question hasn't been set up right. But if, the, if, there's a, if there's a lot of data that should support creationism, mm-hmm. and it, we should just be sort of finding that all the time, then it there is. would be a lot of, of suppression, like a, a lot, a lot of suppression, and a lot of people just sort of willingly overlooking yep. data. There is. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the Creation Research Society has published uh, the Quarterly Magazine, which is a creation-based peer-reviewed journal. Okay. They've been publishing that since the '60s. Um, we're we're talking thousands, thousands of peer-reviewed articles. That's one journal, one journal. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, then you got Answers Research Journal. You've got yeah. Creation Journal. Because I mean, that that is an interesting, like, it's a difficult thing to to start to try to deal with if you want to, like, if you're looking at things from my perspective, it's like you want to sort of just throw away anybody who thinks about cre- because I mean the people right. that that I usually are, am talking to about creationism is either like I'm listening to scientists talk about evolution or I'm listening to you know my uncle or just some some guy in my church who right. who isn't a scientist and can't you know really engage that much with the, the histor- history of the arguments and it's like obviously the scientist wins because you're just kind of throwing random stuff around but like right right in this case I'm not I'm not excluding you from that category. I'm considering you somebody who's actively trying to do science. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's, because I I get asked that question from a conspiracy, conspiracy theory uh, perspective. Yeah. Because the, you know, basically people have have told, have said flat out, you know, the way you're talking, it sounds like a conspiracy. No. Um, Except perhaps a uh, how does how does that term go? Conspiracy, not by omission. Or not by commission, but by omission. Because uh, I mean, there's the, there's a sort of sin quote about this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Tr- oh my goodness. Yeah, my brain. But it's not, not it's not an active conspiracy by a mastermind, but it's sort of just a right a pattern that we fall into as groups. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is is basically what I'm. What but I'm again, getting. like, I mean, that still doesn't sort of deal with that, like, okay, if you fall into that pattern too deeply as a group, eventually your group falls apart because you have to have people sort of keep ignoring. Like, Except people want to believe it. Okay, so that it's connected to this sort of not wanting to admit what? Or like, because, okay, so, so maybe we should go from here because, okay, it seems like probably the reason this, this, this debate got so fiery mm-hmm. in the beginning is because... There was there was a comparison, or it was a compare and contrast, or or like either you believe in a young Earth, and therefore the Bible, and therefore that you're sinful, and therefore all these other things that people, you know, were having difficulty processing and, and were, were frustrating, or they felt disenfranchised by a lot of dogmas. It's like all these things were sort of lumped together. This is the Christian perspective, right. and so if I can discount that, then I don't have to engage with the Christian perspective anymore. Is that what Lyell was the- more or less trying to do? Yeah, which is, Lyell was a strange case because he also spoke religiously. Okay. And, and in some ways even supportive of, of the Christian faith. Okay, um, interesting. But yet you take a look at, it, again, his private writings and correspondence, and it's, it's stunning and profound what he wrote. And I, he, speci- he even said in writing... He came up with this idea of how to dispel the uh, the history according to Moses. Right. The Bible. So, so we need yeah. So we need to go into history according to Moses because I mean, mm-hmm. the way I look at the whole beginning of the Bible is probably a lot different than the way you approach it. Okay. And I I I mean I. I can maybe kind of understand where you're coming from, but I need to probably hear it from your mouth to kind of to get a little bit cl- closer to where you're at. Because, like to me, it seems like we're sort of expecting a bit. Um, we're, we're kind of coming with the wrong priors to approach, you know, the Torah, the, the, these earliest books in the Bible, to try to treat them like scientific books. Correct. I would call them history books. Okay. Okay. So okay. So that that actually helps, I think, because but the way you can write history. 
-hmm. is going to be different depending on what you're trying to communicate. Yes. And yeah. your language yep. and your culture. Yep. And so, I mean, as far as I could understand from, you know, secular and, and Christian, well, I mean, I, when we're talking about the Bible, we're, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of religious scholars or, or scholars who, who, you know, these texts mean something to them. They're not sort of mm -hmm. just trying to discard them. A lot of people that spend time with these, um, it seems that there, a lot of scholars are saying, you know, Genesis is not wasn't written by the hand of Moses necessarily. It was written by probably about five different authors and sort of compiled. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, the sort of mythical nature or like really, really epic nature of a lot of these stories is sort of, has a lot to do with the way they mixed history and poetry in that time. Okay. And I mean, the, what about Jesus? W w why do we, why do we go to Jesus when we're oh. talking about the difference between, I mean, if we're, we're talking, we're talking about different kinds of, of texts, right? We're talking yep. about, you know, the way Greeks thought about and tried to record history. Yeah. And they th talked about, you know, um, truth. Because and, Jesus quoted Noah and the worldwide flood as a real oh, okay, people, I see where you're, real events. Well, Adam I mean, and Eve were the yeah, first I've, I've heard that, but I, I, I don't, I don't kind of draw that conclusion when I hear Jesus referencing these people. It's like when, when I talk about, you know, when I talk about a lot of people that I'm not really sure how historical the stories we have about them, mm -hmm. I, I still reference them because they're sort of cultural characters that we can reference. And there's, there's ideas embedded in those stories. It's like I talk about Achilles or I talk about um, the Buddha. I talk about various people who like, you know, it's, it's ancient enough history. I mean, whenever, it's, it's, when you get past a certain date, it becomes a lot, I don't know, you have this sort of mysterious relationship with trying to understand, okay, how historical is that? How different is their understanding of, or, or even their intention for how they want to communicate and record information than mine? Like there, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a gradual difference in, and a gradual difficulty. And the more ancient you get, the more, or the less sure you can be, you're sort of on the same page about how you're trying to make sense of the, of, of the world. Which, again, I bring it back to Christ because okay. this was an allegory to him. When you read through the text, he spoke of Adam and Eve as real people. The fall in the Garden of Eden as a real event. Right. Uh, the apostles did as well. Um, this wasn't, none of this was allegory or uh, uh, how, how, or, how could or, we draw that distinction of, of like, why, why would we say that he's not talking about it allegorically or even talking about it sort of engaging their semi-historical mindset about these stories that like, okay, this is, this is, a, this is like when, we, when you talk about, what, what's his name? The guy who like conquered um, Alexander the Great. Like the stories we have about his life are, I think are sort of pretty loose and pretty um, hyperbolic. It's like the, the, the history is like, we know it to be a sort of semi-myth, semi-historical account. Okay. And so um, when, we th when we think about it and we talk about it, we talk about it as a real person and, like, and especially like a real story. Right, it's right. like a, it's a real historical story that is like it's true, but not necessarily in the same um, or a, as deeply or um, focused on recording facts or observable scientific facts as we would be at, at this point where our philosophy of science and and and, mm -hmm. you know, even solving crime and all of these things are like we, we have a lot more of a, an obsession with data at this point than I think we have historically. Yes. Um, and some of that data is Christ rising from the dead. So he demonstrated who he was. He demonstrated he knows something we don't. Mm -hmm. He, if he, I mean, he spoke in parables in other, other places. So yeah. why 
would he not speak in parable form about Adam and Eve? Well, he sometimes, does he always say, and this is a parable? Before? No, fair enough. But again, when you look at it, uh, you know, as it was in the beginning, uh, so shall it be in the day, in the, or as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Um, you know, Noah was a real person. Those days, he's, he's specifically re- referencing days and events uh, historically and saying it's going to happen again before Christ returns and comparing now to then. I mean, uh, again, I, I think I see what you're saying, but it, it doesn't seem to me that, you, that there's that much of a... Of a not, not, not that much that impels me to, to go in that direction when, re, when reading or hearing Jesus say those things. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, he's, he's referencing this, but it, it doesn't, like the fact that he's referencing it doesn't say that much about the way in which, you know, he's intending people to take it. Or again, we have to kind of look at the culture and, and the way those people would have heard these, these stories and these references. Like, do you think that they would have heard them that close to the way that you or I would with, with a sort of a simple... Uh, a simple reading. Like, I mean, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, mm-hmm. that seems to be, I mean, that's still something I sort of wrestle with and struggle with, but like, it's, it seems to be one of the, the least, um, least fuzzy features of these, of these accounts. It's like everybody says this happened in more or less the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other details about the life of Jesus that are sort of seem to be hyperbolized, hyper- I don't know, Ex- exaggerated, that's probably the word, better word, exaggerated to, to, to focus on key points and like, and, and I don't have a problem with that. Like, I, I think that would be, again, just trying to record the story and, and record the events in, in a way that, that compresses the facts into something that people could digest and, and it is the most meaningful way of compressing that knowledge. Because again, you, you'll always have that problem with whenever you're trying to communicate, you have to compress it into the appropriate, appropriate level of simplicity. Yes, but I think he would... Uh... I think it would be apparent. I mean, let, let's look at it from another perspective as well. Um, over and over again, we see in Genesis, the Genesis account where God spoke something into existence. Right. So the miracles of Jesus, were they allegory? Were they just exaggerated? Or did they actually happen? And I would argue they actually happened to the point where even the Pharisees didn't deny it. Right. Um, so those... I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't have as much... Sorry, I'm interrupting. I don't know where you're going with this, but I, I don't have as much of... I don't really have a problem with that, like saying that the miracles Jesus did were, were real events. Right, right. But, but the point I'm getting at is what did he do there? He spoke these miracles into existence. Sure. When he uh, called Lazarus from the dead, he yelled in a loud voice, Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. Sure, sure. Um, that... And, you know, did that ha- take place over millions of years or did it happen? No, now? I mean, like, th- that seems to be, that seems to be what's sort of so important about these, I mean, when I think about Genesis and, and the Torah, the, mm-hmm. these myths is the way I, I would refer to them. And, and I wouldn't say myth. And, I mean, it, I, I know, I know th- there's some baggage there as far yeah. as, like, myth yeah. being, like, oh, just not true. Like, like right, right. I think myth is probably more true than a, than a historical account right, right. In, in some sense of the word. But yeah, so we look at these myths. Like, so that's one of the most important features of that story is that it talks about the power of the word, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that the, you know, that the historical event of, you know, God, the father having a mouth and speaking with his tongue and shaping 
air into words so that way the words cause a miraculous thing to happen. It doesn't have, have to be that specific, that detailed, and that, um, the analogy doesn't have to run that deep. It's like the fact that it's, that it's phrased that way and that that lasted, and that's the, that's the story that sort of that God wanted us to keep and to hold on to and to shape our lives by. It's like, that's, that's important. And then Jesus acts that out. So, I mean, you're, you're pointing to a comparison there, and I think that's a valid, a valid point. Like, yes, you do speak miraculous things into existence, and you need to think the words are extremely powerful. Except, um, except that that was done to make a point. Right. Because in Genesis, uh, for instance, I, and I, I talk about this in, in my lectures, the origin of life, for example, um, from a scientific perspective, it can't happen by natural processes. It just can't. Um, it's physically impossible. Uh, so for, for which, sorry, for for the first life, a, the abiogenesis. Yeah, okay. abiogenesis, basically. Right. Um, so raising the dead is basically abiogenesis. You're looking for. You have to have an A at the beginning. So basically, um, raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, that is bringing life from non-life. And he did it. How did he do it? He did it by speaking it. He yeah. didn't do it over millions of years. He right. did it now in yeah. front of everybody. He did it by speaking it into existence. So coming back to the Genesis account, he was simply doing exactly what he did and showing, hey, this is how it happened. Right because he spoke the things into existence, which included the first, the creation of the first people. He spoke it into existence. And there's, there's I don't know if, I'm, if I can explain that properly, but there is no scientific difference between speaking to dust and forming a man and speaking to a dead body and bringing it to life. There, right, there because no, both of them, these sort of, um, and I just learned this word, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be showy, but I, yeah, I just, <laughs> I was watching another guy, John Verveke, talk about and it kind of introduced me to the ideas of Plato and Socrates, which mm -hmm. I had, was totally, you know, dumb about before. Mm -hmm. But one of the really useful um, words that's kind of entered into my vocabulary since hearing him introduce these ideas is the idea of the eidos or like eidetic identity, which I think that's even where identity comes from is the eidos of the thing. Okay. Right. So, the the key feature of like the difference between the idos of a thing like like its thingness and just um the features of the thing is that there's a the word he uses is structural functional makeup of the thing so it's not just the features like like when you're looking at a human body if you have hands and feet and and all the you know genetic material you need to have a human body it's not really a human unless there's this the feature of consciousness, right? right. If, you, if you just have right. all of those features, like, okay, you have to have hands and elbows and knees and feet. It's like, okay, you, if you just have all of those things, if they're not arranged functionally to be a human and are in this sort of um, cooperation where they're like keeping each other alive and sustaining each other and, and like in the proper orientation, like they're organized properly. If you don't have that, it's not a human, right? So right, right. the, but we don't exactly know, like, I mean, and this, this should be a common and, and, and not controversial thing to say about the human body. We don't know that much about how the human body fits together and what it's doing. Yeah. And the, re the, re the reason the human body stays alive. We know enough to be dangerous and yeah. enough to, to shut it off and enough to sometimes turn it back on and, and to, to correct certain things to, to the best extent of our understanding of what the human body is doing right now. Mm -hmm. But obviously there's a lot of big 
big mistakes we've made as far as trying to understand the human body so yeah. far, like even <laughs> like the appendix and things like that. Like, right. okay, we thought it was just a useless organ. Turns, turns out there's more that has to do with that Im immune system and stuff like that to do with mm -hmm. it, right? So there's, there's a lot to do with the body. In fact, I would probably say most of what's going on in the body, we haven't even tapped into yet. Yeah, right. I think that's fair. That, that, that's just sort of an intuitive <laughs> statement. I, I'm not, yeah. I can't be super sure about that. I don't know, know the science behind it, but I'm just kind of throwing that out yeah, there. I mean, even, even just now take it a little more specific, the human brain. Right. Um, there's still so much we don't know about it. I mean, the, oh, be, yeah, the best we try to model it is that it's like a computer, but it, that, that's even way yeah. off, right? Yeah. The, it, people are so paranoid about artificial intelligence, and it's like, because I, I, I know something about artificial intelligence, right? And it's like, oh, let's just say it's very artificial and not very intelligent. <laughs> just leave it at that. You know, and they're trying to mimic, and again, this comes back to our limited knowledge, trying to mimic what the way we think right. the brain works. Right. Even though a number of, of experts who have spent their, their lives studying the brain right. uh, say there's much more to there that we we don't even know where this is. We don't know where... The, the way you spell it, Evan, is E-I-D-O-S. That's, that's why I was getting it wrong. Um, oh, Eidos. Oh. Yes. That's the name of a video game company. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I know a lot of abstract words, too. That's <laughs> how so I learned the word insomniac, I think, because I oh, like the Ratchet and Clank games. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> um, okay but so you're talking about... Is, in, the difference between dust being made into a human and the difference between yep. a dead person being made into a human is whether or not... There's an idos of a human in there, right? This structural, right. functional relationship between all of all of the features and and their actually relationship to one another, right? The, yeah. the relationship. So it's like we 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 don't even know all the features. Way off from that, and beyond that, there's this infinite more amount of data that has to do with their relationship to each other and, and how they're sort of functioning together. Somehow Christ puts that back into Lazarus, right? Somehow God puts that into dust. So I mean that's that's interesting. Um, trying to think about where I was going with that, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you're, you're talking to the, the, that it's the same sort of pattern, and like, uh, yeah, again, I don't have a problem with that. I, 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 th I see Jesus speaking to Lazarus as sort of an affirmation of the power of, you know, speaking truth to the world. Yes, I guess. I guess the reason I bring that up is why. Why believe the story about Jesus, but have doubts about the story of Adam and Eve? Well, because it, there's thousands of years in between the cultural evolution and, and how they would think about stories. It's like, I, I don't think, like, I mean, even when approaching the Gospels and literature that ancient, mm -hmm. I, I have that much less certainty about any of the events talked about there. I have, I have certainty that these are important. I, I have a, a sort of a general certainty based on my, you know, relationship to my religion that, like, we as Christians believe this text is really important and we need to center our lives around it. Right. And that it's really true. And I don't necessarily mean true as in factual, but it's, it is that it, it aims true. It teaches us how to live our life in a, in a true way. So it's like, I, I lean more into the sort of didactic um, nature of the Bible as far as it, it teaches how- Using these big words. Sort of, I'm leaning <laughs> into that I, I believe the Bible is a book that teaches us how to live, not um, just facts about the universe. Like that, that in, in some cases, that's sort of nice, but it's like, I don't think God is, w w even to sort of really put it from the Christian perspective, it's like, I don't, I don't think God would want to just give us a, a, a book for doing science when most of us aren't scientists, right? Like, it, mm -hmm. it's not, it's obviously not primarily a science, science book. That, that right. seems to be something we should be able to agree yeah. on. 
And so I, I see the scientific philosophy as being somewhat young and somewhat recent. And so reading that into more and more ancient texts and looking at Genesis as one of the most ancient ones, Job even more ancient, it seems strange to read that much of our current relationship in our, with, with sense making and with history and with facts back into such an ancient culture. Okay. I was going to go someplace with this. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'll keep going and you can interrupt me when, you, when you've, sure. you've got something. Because like, write it down. There's, there's, a lot of, um, <laughs> there's a lot of other mythologies that are similarly old. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, well, I, I don't know, how, how, do you, how do you square that? It's like you look at the Egyptian mythology or the Mesopotamian th- mythology, and it's like they have very similar stories for the creation of the universe or, or similarly mythic and epic. Um, and it's like, how did they get to those? Why do they have these stories? Did, I mean, unless maybe you believe like a, like a demon told them to write this story or like it, it seems to me that a lot of people were sort of trying to grapple with, I mean... The way I think about it is that, okay, we have different cultures competing to survive at all. And the fact that they even become cultures as opposed to just small groups of people, it's like the only way to do that, only way to sort of surpass, there's something that um, another guy I was paying attention to introduced me to called the Dunbar limit or the Dunbar number, which is basically like the number of, of relationships you can sort of actively keep up with in your life and like care about, right? There's a certain, it's, it's kind of variable as to what that number is, but like, you know, 50, 100, 250 bucks, but like, you get past a certain number, maybe maybe 200, and it's just like, you, you can't, maybe some people can, but like in general, humans can't keep up with that many relationships and you get a sort of chaotic society or chaotic group of relationships and it falls apart. People end up hurting each other or just they end up killing each other. They're not on the same page enough that they can't have an, a structure that stays together. It, it doesn't end up being a society. In order to get past that Dunbar limit, mm-hmm. you need to have a, a story that sort of orients you together. You need to have a shared myth, right? If you have a general, if you have sort of a really compressed patterned way of looking at the way your people look at the world and how you engage with the world, then you can sort of have more people on the same page because they know the same story. They've sung the same songs together. You have like a a lot of really, really compressed. And again, whenever you compress a lot of information, you lose a lot of the detail, Mm -hmm. but you have a really general flow of like, at least we're all going this direction. We have, we have these songs and that's how a sort of religion develops. And like, so it seems that, you know, the same reason that Egypt was so successful and ended up being a group of people that ended up existing and, and thriving for so long is that they had, they had stumbled on something probably deeply true in their myths. Mm. And that, that would be why I would even look at the similarities between, like, I, some people look at the similarities between different ancient mythologies and say, well, that's proof that, that Christianity is just made up and they were just copying off somebody else. It's like, okay, sure, maybe, maybe more or less, that doesn't actually, that doesn't discount the Christian myth. It actually, to me, as a Christian, it, that all the more says, look at, the, look at how incredible it is that these other people were sort of wrestling with reality and came to similar conclusions about the nature of existence and the nature of God and, and the nature of us in this world and in this universe. Or they were reporting, all reporting the same events, but the events are right. distorted. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I see where you're going with this and I'm not sure I agree with where you're going, but at least with that statement, I... I, I agree on. So you you can take over here for a sec. Well, that's really that's the the bottom line. Okay, is just it's you know if if you've got different perspectives of the same event, you know why 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 would I believe uh, you know uh, 
uh, Russian news uh, Russian news outlets report of one thing, uh, the one event, and uh, BBC reports on the same thing, but includes different details. Right. Um, one doesn't discount the other. Uh, nor nor does it mean that BBC plagiarized sure, sure, abruptly sure. or whatever. So um, if they're if they're trying to describe the same events, and we'd probably have to say that for a long time these stories would have been orally transferred because you know depending on how ancient. But let's go with it. Sure. Sure. Okay. So so potentially these groups because they lasted so long, like writing probably didn't get sort of discovered or invented or developed until a sufficiently advanced or sufficiently. Um, uh, what would you say, like rigorous? I don't know, like a, like a society that was pretty strong could stand up and support itself and have time to spend doing other things than just looking for food. They had time to start to develop language, develop written language. That would have to come later than than the original just organizational structure of the group. But let's back up for a second. Okay, is written superior <clears throat> to oral? Not superior, but it's just more long lasting and easier to sort of distribute in a, a streamlined. Yes. Or perhaps because people were more intelligent in the past, oral was just simply the preferred. And but because oral started because intelligence was declining over time, oral also starts to uh, oral traditions also start to decline in quality as well. So then they invent writing basically. Okay, I mean that's an interesting take. I it's thinking about things from. I don't know. The, the way that lands for me is more, I would think that uh, writing, and initially you'd end up with just written numbers because being able to sort of deal with data and you start to develop an economy, you want to be able to do that a little bit with a little bit more detail than just like, okay, this looks like roughly the same amount as that because, I don't know, it, it, obviously there's, there's utility in that. So I would see it initially it becomes useful for just like economy. Um, right. And then later what would come next why, why, why would you start writing down i mean you said maybe just people are just getting less intelligent i don't that, that seems i don't know could you unpack like why why would why would it's, being written down be a set of less intelligence um it because it's trying to make up for so so basically oral traditions um because people being more intelligent in the past oral transmission uh was faster uh, it was easier. Um, you could cover more ground in a shorter amount of time. It was more accurate. But right. if orally, if we start to decline in intelligence, um, and again, this is all you know, wild speculation, but the reason I bring that up is because I want to point out there's a hidden assumption there that, um, that we were increasing in intelligence over time. Where you know, whereas it may very well be backwards. Whereas you know, writing was made was in, was invented or developed right. uh, to be to make up for the loss that was being experienced over time. I think that might be kind of focusing. I I, I see. I think I actually sort of agree with that um, with that that trajectory. And like you, you can even sort of see it now. It's like the, the more technology that you incorporate into a society, the less demand there is on each individual to be that intelligent or even that right, healthy right, right. like you your technology covers all your bases the more like your your strongest technology covers for the for the weakest of anybody who mm -hmm. other than things that aren't covered sort of by your technology at the time so it's like now 
people are getting less and less, you know, reliant on, on memorizing anything because we've gone even past past paper. We've gone to the internet. Right now we just look everything up. Right? So, Portable brain, yes. <laughs> right. So we've become deeply um what would you say when somebody's half a, like cy- cyborgs basically. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like so yeah, I I see that. I see that. But I'm not sure that it would be so causal that like we're getting less intelligent so we need technology but almost more that it's a feedback loop that we when we discover technology it leads to us just less demand on general intelligence um so maybe i sort of agree with that but um so i mean i I, but there's an obvious utility to to writing things down as well but we're talking about so we're talking about myth and and why people develop myth where where was my original i'm trying to i was making an argument about yeah and and basically all all i'm mentioning is is uh there would be a train of events, basically. So oral traditions were originally very accurate, uh, passed down generation to generation, but that started to decline. They began to be distorted more and more okay. over time. Yeah, I, I think I would then, say, sure, accurate. And I'm not, like, I, when I see this sort of, like, like, I think that there was sort of an evolution or a um, compression or a development of the stories we told about the universe and these you know, the oral tradition. Um, and it's like the, the, what, what, what you get when you start to write things down is that you're not limited by the amount of time you have to sit down and tell, tell, sing the song or tell the story, right? Because if you want to sort of absolutely replicate an oral tradition, you have to memorize it. And that takes time. And even if you're particularly intelligent or you have a pretty good memory, it still takes the amount of time to say the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean... Unless we want to say that, like the entirety of of Genesis, through these numbers, I don't know, through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy was like people just had that memorized and they kind of passed it down with word for word for for generations. Is that kind of more or less I, where your intuition goes? No, I'm I'm uh, no, I because I wouldn't even necessarily say say that that's the case. I'm just simply trying to point out how you could. You could turn it on its head, okay, and argue that uh, be- because that does have the subtle assumption. But I, all I was trying to point to is that I think the oral tradition was first, and then writing was later, right? Which so, may or may not be true, but sure, sure. No, that, that, I think we have to agree there, like because it, it has to be true that 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 writing happens later than we learn how to speak, because technology, like learning how to, like the technology of, of speech is more useful and costs less than the technology of writing things down. Right. Right, you have to, ha- you have yeah, to carry yeah, things you, around, right? When you put it that way, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, we definitely start talking... Adam and Eve talked first. Right. Wrote right. later. Right. So, even, even I would agree with that. Right. So, I mean, uh, we have a story about the universe first, and that's important, um, and... Crap, I don't know how, d- how deep we want to go on this, but I'm, let's hang out here for, for a few more minutes anyways. So you, you, there has to be a story first, and that story has to be good enough that it sort of keeps you alive. It has to sort of not just ring true, but teach you true patterns about existence, teach you a true way of orienting your life enough that you end up be, becoming a sort of successful society and, and existing for a long enough, longer period than you know, those who you're sort of competing with. So why, why would you say that uh, Genesis, for example, is not history? I wouldn't say that it's not history. I would just say that it wasn't history... It doesn't seem likely to me that it was history recorded from a modern 20th century Western mindset. Well, I would, that I would agree with. <laughs> right. But, but it's like the, the many other similar kinds of traditions and stories about 
about human history are sort of radically different, but and the way that they're sort of interpreted is that they're extreme compressions of like very complicated and and long term patterns that they sort of noticed in their society that somehow gradually worked their ways into their stories. And like I don't know how that process might have happened, especially if we're dealing with millions of years of oral tradition, mm. at, or potentially I don't know. I, I, especially if we have that long, then we have a lot of a lot of room to sort of speculate about the development of these stories and how they develop. Because again, yeah. the more the more your story, and again, I'm, I'm using a different kind of way of talking about truth, but the more your story teaches you to live in a way that, that conforms to the demands of reality, or basically the more your story about reality teaches you how to be in right relationship with God, the more you're going to have a successful life and you're going to survive, I think. And so I think that like, even the, the, the theory of evolution can sort of account for the development, the, the, evolutionarily, the evolutionary development of stories that actually um, point to the way God works and the way he created. Okay. I don't know if that's kind let's of a say, weird... <laughs> let's, let's take that and run with it for a second because the theory of, theories of evolution have been around... Or the camera turned off again. I don't know if you want to hit that. Uh, theories of evolution were around at the time of Christ. Yeah. So if, if we had evolved, for example, why would Christ point to Moses instead of saying, hey, go pay attention to what the Greeks said? Because the Greeks are onto something. I mean, the Greeks had theories of evolution, of you know, gradual formation. So why, why would Jesus, if evolution, if he'd used evolution or God had used evolution, why would Jesus not point to the Greeks and their theories of evolution, and instead he talked about, talked about Moses and the writings of Moses as historical in fact? I mean, again, I, I don't, I don't think we have to assume that he, he's he's treating them as historical or fact, but at least that he's treating them as true, which again, I, I totally agree. Um, okay. And especially also, whenever you're talking to any particular community, I think it, you want to sort of choose the path of least resistance towards the most true thing you can say to those people. I don't want to kind of get, if, if, if you ask me about my day, and I know you're really just asking about, you know, I was feeling if it was generally a good day, mm-hmm. I can spend a long time kind of explaining what I mean by that I had a good day or I can kind of get to the point and I can say mm-hmm. I had a good day. And you might, you might have slightly different presumptions about what I mean by that than what I'm communicating, but at least I, I know that that pragmatically we're, we're going to be on the same page enough when I say I had a good day that that's all I need to say. If Jesus is talking to, especially talking to Jews who are mm-hmm. deeply familiar with these texts, I don't think the most relevant thing to point to would be material they're not familiar with. And I, and I don't think, especially Unless as far as... it was true. Well, well <laughs> if, the if thing Moses is that there's, there's plenty true. of true things. If Moses was false, why point to it? I'm not... That's the thing. Is I'm not saying that Moses was false, but it's like if, if, the, if the story of Moses communicated the point most succinctly and most, truth, most truthfully that Jesus was trying to get at, and I, and I, I think that's true. I, th- I think that, that the story of creation that we, we find in the Bible... There's a lot more truth in that story than there is in the story about evolution. Evolution helps us to do science, 
but it, it doesn't help us as much with the journey of trying to how, to how to grapple with God and how to have a relationship with God. So I think that the, that the Bible is more true than the theory of evolution. I would, I would disagree that evolution helps us with science, but uh, frankly, right. well, frankly assume, assuming that it did, is, okay. Fra- evolu- evolution is frankly anti-science um, because again, you know, you come back to it, uh, all the, you mentioned the appendix, for instance, that was only one of a hundred and some alleged vestigial organs um, that were alleged evolutionary leftovers. Yeah. They were, uh, they were discarded as useless leftovers, yeah. which is an evolutionary assumption. So that actually hindered science, scientific research because people weren't going and looking to see what all these organs did. Right. Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, you, you say that's anti-scientific and I, I agree with you to the extent that I, I, like, I think that the spirit of science and, and the way that science ought to be practiced conforms a little bit more to just something like Christian humility and like Christian community participation, like in a church, right? Like mm-hmm. mutual trust and sharing of knowledge and being willing to be wrong and learn from one another. I think that that's how science sort of ought to be practiced. But to the extent that science tries to distance itself from those values or specifically just from the really initially just the baggage of Christian terminology and, and, you know, and theology. A lot of people, I mean, there's a problem there that we were, we're having a difficult time within the Christian um, faith, engaging our culture in a way that, that they find meaningful. And I, I think that that's a problem. Um, And it seems that this, the, the hard argument between evolutionists and creationists might be somewhat a result of that, of people retreating from and trying to escape from from a conversation that we're, we're not sort of having very well and so i kind of understand that um and so I, I i don't like i mean you kind of sum it up as just people not willing to kind of come come to terms with their sin i, I think that's sort of loosely true but I, I guess i just have a little bit more compassion for that perspective as well because it seems like there is a genuinely um difficult and frustrating and, and probably not being handled very well conversation that i, I can see why people would want to run away from and so that, that sort of makes sense to me. Sorry, I know that's sort of a tangent, but I, I, I want to make sure to touch on that because I, I well, I, I, don't, I don't know how your perspective in general is of, of the sort of scientific community. I mean, you, you made a pretty sweeping statement that, that evolution is anti-science. Yes. And I, I think that people who are practicing, you know, people who are practicing math, people who are practicing any, any academic discipline are at times... And in a lot of ways, anti whatever that discipline is, because the way that you practice any of those disciplines properly would look a lot more like the way that, you know, Christian values, I think, would, would ultimately teach you to practice it. Say that again? I, I guess I'm just saying that, like, <laughs> any, any academic discipline yep. is, is anti what it's sort of supposed to be to the extent that it's not being practiced in a more or less Christian way. And so, like... There's a, there's a there's a separation between Christianity and and science right now, for reasons that is is another long conversation. But so science is trying to get by being anti Christianity to some extent. So it's 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 anti itself to the extent that it's anti Christianity. I guess um, the problem there being the limits of science, which are philosophical, of course. Okay. Um, but. Uh, but science is restricted to the natural realm. So the moment you get into uh, discussions of God or creation, um, and in some ways even evolution, um, you start getting 
beyond that realm of the natural uh, law of biogenesis. To, to come up with the first life, you have to violate the law, a, no, a well-established scientific and natural law of biogenesis. So that means it's neither natural nor scientific. It is, by definition, a supernatural process. So it's outside the realm of science. Of science, it's a miracle. It's outside the. I mean, the, the way I think about that, because I mean, we ha we have to kind of deal with that every time we're talking about a baby being born. Like consciousness somehow just ends up there in what was previously just cells, or previously just an egg and a sperm. Right. Right. Like, unless you think that all the eggs and all the sperms are conscious, or like half conscious, and then they get full conscious. Right. 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 <laughs> it, 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 that, that's a strange argument, and I don't think that the. I don't think that the um, the facts are in about that. I don't think we have a, a, a strong... I don't think anybody can really, really confidently say this is when consciousness begins to exist or this even is what consciousness is. That's a huge debate and nobody can really... Mm -hmm. we, we haven't landed on that. Um, oh, geez, where was I going? I don't know. I guess are we, are we getting kind of late here? Okay. <laughs> I will try not to go too much. I mean, there's there's a, there's a lot here to, and a lot of lot of avenues we can go down. Mm -hmm. um, so we, yeah, where does where does consciousness come from? We don't know. So we're talking about you know biogenesis. But even, even consciousness is outside of the the natural realm or outside of the scientific realm. Right. Okay. Because so what I was going to say is, as far as the scientific realm, it's like okay, that that word of scientific realm doesn't quite. I mean, so so you see that there's sort of a hard divide between the natural and supernatural, because I mean. Yep. Okay, I guess I just that's not where my my sort of intuition goes. I guess I like I I don't see the um and I mean you can get into Lewis has written a whole bunch about like on miracles about whether or not you know miracles are something that sort of break the laws of nature. He he doesn't he doesn't view it that way. He views it as just sort of like things outside of our understanding of the way that the world and universe works. Yes, it, but it would be outside of the laws of nature. Well, I mean, um, raising the dead, for example. Well, that's, I mean, uh, raising the dead or, or or life coming from something that's not alive happens every time a baby is conceived, right? um, except it's coming from life. Well, sort of. I mean, if if you had just like when you have, yeah, put it to you this way, it didn't come from a rock. Okay. So, so the the law. So, of biogenesis what, what, what's is, the difference then between life and because and life only comes from life. No, I know. Okay, but so what? How do you define something as being alive? Yeah, well, that's another one. Yeah, <laughs> right. I know. So, I mean, we we should more or less recognize that as sort of a mystery too, and it's difficult to define these yes. things. It's just a strange border. Yeah. So you say like, you said the law of biogenesis. You brought that up a couple of times. Is that something that mm -hmm. we can we can look at? And uh, what is that? What's the law of biogenesis? Yeah, that was that was basically Louis Pasteur that came up with that, um, and it's basically when. Uh, very simply put, we only see life coming from life. There has never been an exception. That's why it's a law. Uh, there's actually very few scientific and natural laws, per se. Um, but that's one of them. And it's because it's always been observed that way. Uh, we have never observed life coming from, say, a rock, something non-living. Uh, anything we did would be outside of, of that law. It's based on the one. Yeah. And, he, and even the evolutionists would agree on that. I mean, they, they wouldn't agree that it would be a law that it can't come from non-life. Like, I, I, obviously... Actually, they do. 
I mean, I know Dawkins doesn't think of it that way. And when I read the selfish gene, he talks about biogenesis. He talks about how it might yeah, have they, happened. They talk, yeah, they talk about it. They talk about how it might have happened, but it's never been observed. And there's right, well, reasons for it. But the, 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 the point within the theory is not that it, it's been observed. It's just that, like, that there's not a law against it being possible. Except that is a law. Okay, but, and well, Dawkins even knows it. Okay, but so... So basically, the, the way laws work in science do, isn't the way that they work in. Well, I mean, I guess it's more it is more or less. It isn't it the is way the, it works in his imagination. No, I was going to say, isn't the, the way they work line. in society or like legal systems? But in some sense, right. it is. It's just like if somebody violates it, they're in trouble. But not. They're, they're not laws. I mean, as far as like Newton's law of gravity, he didn't describe gravity very well. He, he, he did it to the best of. He, he did it pretty well, and it became useful for a lot of things. And then we realized when we start talking about celestial objects, his laws of gravity don't work anymore and then we get einsteinian relativity yeah and i'm not even which, sure there's laws of gravity right well i and mean einstein relativity is definitely not a law right i mean um, th that got us a lot further though it, it became almost law-like and then now we're now we're beyond that we don't know what to do because there's things about not laws that's and that's my point well i mean there's, there's it's, very few scientific and natural laws the law of biogenesis is one of them okay, there's, there's never been an exception observed and there's actually millions of reasons why we'll, we'll never see an exception observed. I mean, <laughs> that's sort of a, I don't know, you, you could say that, but like, that doesn't sound like... <laughs> that's the facts. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's a fact, again, it's a fact that it hasn't been observed. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, I mean, I didn't observe you getting here. Like, any anytime we try to, like, think about truth, we're always doing a lot of inferring. Yes. So, I mean, the as somebody who who finds the story of evolution compelling, I don't look and and think about the you know when I think about abiogenesis. I don't know what you said bio biogenesis. Biogenesis, is abiogenesis, okay. the same thing. Basically. Okay. Um, I I don't think that you have to observe that for it to be the most compelling story that we sort of have about about. Well, I mean, it's just like it's 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 one story we can infer about potentially where we came from, as opposed to we were poofed into existence by God speaking. Both are outside of the natural realm, right? Well, yeah, um, both of them are beyond our current understanding of science, and I, I guess that's what kind of way we're talking about natural and supernatural realm. Whereas, like, yes, when I think about natural versus supernatural, it doesn't have to do with there being different laws. It's just that any of our current sort of scientific laws have to do with our best modeling of the universe that we can do so far. But like, it's always a so far and, and hopefully to be disproved someday when we get better at it. Right. Except the laws are, are in a, in a different category all in themselves. So I'm, all I'm saying is that the first life had to have come from life. That's, that's all I'm saying. Now, in, in my case, what I think is that first life was outside of the natural realm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I'm interested even in this, philosophical thinkers now who are wondering whether or not everything is alive <laughs> right <laughs> which so i mean right, like right. that 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 becomes less i mean less or more of a problem depending on where you're looking at it because i i, I don't know that there's a fundamental difference between i mean this but this is obviously where, where the where the problem gets very fuzzy and difficult to follow because okay what's life what's consciousness we don't know exactly it's difficult to explain so except um the reason I bring that up is I'm playing by the evolutionist rules. Okay. If it can only be natural processes. I mean, from, from my perspective, <laughs> as, as not an evolutionist, because I'm not, a, not doing evolutionary scientist, but somebody who believes in evolution, 
or believes that evolution. I don't, I don't know the best way sure. to say that. Um, I, I don't think that you have to. I don't think you have to 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 demonstrate it for it to be a compelling story. It just has to be okay. We're we're gonna keep trying i mean whenever you talk about laws it's just i don't think that they have to be laws as far as being unbreakable i like if you're talking to me as opposed to just the evolutionists who are playing by their own rules i just i i think that the that any law or any statement scientific fact is a you know fact in t- until later proven in more detail and potentially refuted by by the more details that we sort of observe as we keep on digging yes and in the meantime um, there is literally millions of reasons why that has never been observed to be violated and why it won't be. Um, just the just the proteins in your body. They can't, uh, everything in nature works to break them apart, not build them up. The, uh, the DNA in your body, everything in nature works to break them apart. Uh, not to mention where did the code from come from? Um, you know, if you write out letters on a screen, um, that that is gibberish unless an intelligence imposes order in that. Okay. So, I mean, all of those things, there, there's literally millions of reasons why uh, biogenesis has never been observed to be, um, nothing, it's never been observed to be uh, refuted or it hasn't been observed to have happened. And it won't be. Okay. Is what I'm I said I would pay attention to our, our energy levels about how long we could go in. Yes. I think we're probably reaching the end oh, here. Oh, I'm way past the end. <laughs> I want to, if, if we can tread it lightly, I want to maybe talk about one, one last thing for a few minutes. And I'm not going to ask you about aliens because I know that could be another three-hour conversation. <laughs> but, okay, as far as, so you made this statement about things ultimately going towards destruction, talking about like thermodynamics or, yep. or just like things breaking apart. I, I don't argue that that is a feature of of existence and of reality and the way systems work, but I don't think that just because that directionality is is in there, like the, the directionality to fall apart, means ultimately every, everything is heading towards destruction and falling apart. I don't think we're we're ultimately headed toward entropy just because entropy is a feature of working systems. Is, okay. is entropy not a it, not a good word to use here? That's possibly. Uh, Basically, entropy is another one of the very few scientific laws. And right. that is, it's an absolute in the scientific community. Right. So it's not, that's not a maybe. I mean, uh, some have even written, you know, if you, uh, if you, if you disagree with entropy, there's no whole. No, no I'm not saying that, <laughs> that I disagree with entropy. I'm saying that I, I disagree that the fact that entropy is true means that or that it's true i mean that's that's such a weird statement to make about <laughs> um but like the fact that basically just to, to more simply rather than getting into too much jargon that, that things break down breaking down is a fundamental feature of growing stronger and actually and becoming uh and growth like when it's, it's a fundamental feature of evolutionary theory too it's just like it's mm-hmm. mutation like if things break down and then they fall into a, a new way of being like then there's a possibility that they get better. And if they get better, even if mostly they get, usually they get worse, the better ones survive and the worse ones die off. And I think you see that, like evolutionary theory, the reason that I found it so interesting when I first heard it talked about in detail is because it seemed to make sense of so many other aspects of my life beyond, like especially the final chapter of The Selfish Gene where he talks about memes. 
right? He, he applies evolutionary theory to ideas. And I was like, this is the, like one of the most useful ways I've been able to think about thinking. Like the, this is such a, such an interesting and compelling story and it's so useful for analyzing the way I work and the way communities work, right? Ideas do break down, but ultimately the extent that we see cultures progressing to the extent that we see families progressing to the extent that you know that i hope that my children will be more mature and more wise than i am and that my sort of my ceiling will be their floor that would be a result of sort of mimetic evolution like things my ideas breaking down and, and sort of whatever was whatever was good about them sticking except again let's while that's not what we see let's take that and run with it um, as you mentioned, which is correct, uh, if if you could uh, let, let's talk genetics, just because that kind of brings the concept home. Mm -hmm. um, there are mutations, and the vast majority of them <clears throat> are detrimental. They're not good for you, right? Or new, actually, sorry, the vast majority are neutral, has right, right. Yeah, no okay. benefit or detriment. And then some of them are are totally detrimental. Quite a few right. detrimental. Some might argue you might get one in a hundred that's positive. Mm -hmm. So let's say you pass that on yeah so you've one in 100 on, might even be too too high pro, yeah because there's some who have argued with a lot of compelling evidence that there are no positive mutations but let, let's give it for a second okay. let's just say yeah one in 100 you pass all that on to your children well you've passed on one good gene and at least dozens of detrimental genes mm -hmm. so then the next generation they pass on a good gene, a good gene, and plus the one you pass to them. So now they got two good, good mutations. Now they've got dozens and dozens of detrimental ones. Well, so, but they don't stack up. You're still running with sort of limited, a limited hard drive. To use this sort of a computer analogy, but it's like okay, let's say you have ten gigs of data, and like you know, a hundred meg is 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 useful stuff that you're actually running that's keeping you alive. And then you have, well, if I said you have ten gigabytes, then that means you've got. You've got nine gigabytes and 900 meg to kind of experiment with. Except that's not what the science shows. Okay. Uh, that's, and that's what I'm getting at is, is if you want to pass on those single beneficial mutations, you also have to pass on dozens of detrimental ones. And that's ignoring all the neutral ones. And those do collect over time. Uh, and that's, and that's the issue is, is, you know, even giving, uh, arguably a fictitious scenario of beneficial mutations uh, being passed on. Well, okay, but this sounds like you're just saying that in general evolution as a story, as a directionality is not possible and not accurate. But I thought that you kind of didn't, that wasn't part that, of your perspective. Well, uh, um, let's come back to that term evolution because perhaps I should have clarified this at the beginning because evolution in its simplest form, is it is happening. Evolution is just simply change over time. Right. So, uh, so... But it's not changed to sort of meet an environment and like be more in a right. better relationship with it? You don't, you don't see that? No, no. That's, oh, okay. that's, so you don't see positive evolution as, as being possible? Right, right. And, that's, and that is the evolution that is taught. Positive upwards gaining Can you, evolution. Evan, on, on my notes there, I think I have a... Um, I had some notes I was gonna wanted to talk about with Ian. Click Ian Doobie, right there. Scroll down. Um, 
little lower. Okay. No, I was hoping I had a picture there, but I don't have it. Um, I, I talked to another kind of new friend of mine a couple of weeks ago who mm -hmm. is a Christian evolutionary uh, teacher. She teaches evolution science to uh, evangelical Christians. And she, in one of her talks, she was just kind of showing off a, an experiment that basically just shows that evolution is possible and, and happens. I mean, I, I referenced this earlier that like um, they basically have a vat of... Uh, I can explain the experiment pretty well, even if we don't. Maybe you can find it, but if you can't, it's not that hard to follow. I, I know. I already know exactly what you're talking. Okay, about. so they have but different, like ten different levels of increasing, um, increasing sort of uh, volume or not volume, increasing. There's a poison, and it's diluted as you get further out away from the pool. There's different pools and different entrances. Right? Yes, so you start. You get to the end, and there's there's it's just basically water, and the and the organisms. Okay, that that might be that might be different. I was I was thinking the bacterial mutations uh for like um digesting nylon for instance nylonase is a common one okay well th uh, this one anyways let me see if i can just run, run through it so there's sure. there's like 10 chambers yep. each chamber as you go deeper has a higher percentage of this poison and you yep. get to the outside and there's no poison right right so they introduce a bacteria or i don't know a small organism that, that can yeah. that can reproduce really quickly yeah so some sort of bacteria and uh it's it's not a bacteria that can um it's not sand. It's it's water, or or some sort of <laughs> anyway. Um, this bacteria is not immune to the poison, right? Right. It will die if it's exposed to the poison. Yep. Um, as I mean, basically, they just introduce it to the outer, outermost chamber. Yep. And they have little little small gates in between, um, in between each chamber, mm -hmm. and so you can really easily just see where. The bacteria that was that, that that had a mutation that was able to to stand a little bit of the poison got through, and then you can see the branching of because they can actually just see um, the are they spread. Out. It'd be great to be able to see this because it's a very visual but, thing to kind of look at. But, but, I, but basically, I, you can see that by, by the end there yep. there is a subpopulation. It's great 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 grandchildren yep. in that process that end up being basically totally immune to the poison yeah whereas all the rest of them are not it's the exact same argument with nylon a's citron a's uh it's it's the exact same thing okay. um so basically uh and technically again here we go with the terminologies again technically it is a mutation a mutation again is just a change mm -hmm. in the genetics okay right. um so unfortunately they're they're catch words evolution and mutation okay so it is a mutation, and it does have a benefit. It allows the organisms to survive. Mm -hmm. um, it does that by sacrificing other systems, usually reproduction, um, but not always. Uh, and there was actually a specific terminology for it. I've forgotten the term right now. But basically, it's, um, there's several points to be made there. Number one, this is bacteria not humans. Okay, mm -hmm. so bacteria can exchange DNA. Just Evan, you can just, sorry, Evan, if you want to just YouTube April Cordero and you can find one of her, um, it's, it's in one of her presentations on YouTube. You can find this picture. But sorry, I'm interrupting you. I mean, it sounds like you understand the, the, what's being referenced anyways. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the base thing. Basically, it's all the same, the same principle anyway. Bacteria can exchange DNA by merely touching each other. It's one up there. Uh, no, Um, it's it's later on in there, but um, 
might not be in this. Oh, there, here it is. This is great. So this this shows the the center chamber has has the most of the poison, and um, you can just play it if you want, or you can just kind of play it on fast speed. But there, there's a really interesting visual that you see. But so is your argument just that this sort of the genetic information for being immune to that poison sort of existed in the, in the creature originally, and it just kind of came to the it, forefront? It actually made its re, it actually rearranged its own G DNA. Right, so it, it didn't um, get new DNA. It just had DNA that was already already in there, but that wasn't sort right. of active. Right. It, it no, it borrowed it. It borrowed uh, it. Okay. The, uh, programmers call it metaprogramming. So basically, the program reprograms itself. So they bacteria have this ability. Okay. So they can they can reprogram their own DNA. Uh, they do it for survivability. If you take those bacteria and now put them in normal conditions, they will revert back to exactly the way they were before. Right over over several generations, no, almost almost immediately. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it usually uh, well no, it happens usually within one generation. It has to because otherwise, if it kills them all off, then you've got no reproduction. So it has to be in the, within pretty much within one generation. That doesn't make sense because if 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 they're able to to reproduce in the state where they've kind of put that information on the forefront mm -hmm. where they can be. I mean, you just saw this this visual where like there's a whole bunch of generations after yep. they get introduced to the poison, like they're alive and they're reproducing in that environment. And you put them in yes. another environment, they just stop doing that. No, they're 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 uh, so basically their DNA reverts back to what it was before. the 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 beneficial mutation that allowed them to survive the mm -hmm. poison, uh, it just goes away. Uh, so, for for example, usually it's it's taken. Um, they sacrifice reproductive, uh, not ability but efficiency. Mm -hmm. They sacrifice that, so their their reproduction rate goes way down. Um, and it's not always reproduction. Sometimes it's other so other systems. They take from that to build a survivability ability. And secondly, uh, this is bacteria. It has nothing to do with multicelled organisms. So if this happened, say, for example, in a human, then you have uh, one specific cell which can survive a poison and others can't. So mm -hmm. it flourishes and grows, whereas the other cells die off. We call that cancer. So it doesn't apply to multicellular organisms either. So there's, there's I mean... I, I, I know what they're saying, but there's huge problems with this and trying to apply it to evolutionary uh, theory and gain of function. Uh, what are you saying, Evan? Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it'd, it'd have to be, you'd have to bring up specific, um, you'd have to bring up specifics on that one because it'd have to address each one. Um, there was a, a well-known atheist YouTuber, uh, Aaron Raw, did a, a video on this years ago and actually made a response. His video was pretty short, like 10 minutes, and he was talking about beneficial mutations. And um, first of all, he had like, out of all the examples, I think there was only three that were arguably beneficial mutations. 
Um, and then, I mean, it took me a full half hour just to deal with it because it was so, yeah. first of all, his claims were just plain wrong on, on many of them. And secondly, it was um, detrimental mutations. For example, one mutation allowed this child to grow incredible muscles, but it's also horribly detrimental. And they typically die at a very young age right. because of this. Uh, they're, they're, well, they're muscle bound, basically. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's actually, they call that a beneficial museum, a mutation in cattle because they get more meat off the cattle. But you're ignoring all the detrimental, right? Uh, in order for it to be actually a positive mutation, uh, it has to, it has to meet its environment and it has to last for a long time and continue to exist as well. Yes. So, I mean, yeah. and it's difficult to to do that on, on any sort of observe that on any multi cell organism because generations take a pretty long time. Yes. Although, I mean, probably with bugs, you could probably do some better studies. It, it, it would be great if we if we had the energy and the time to continue to have a super. Yeah super technical discussion about this and try to try to follow this conversation to the end. I mean, there's no end to this conversation. We're not, we're not going to solve this, this divide, but come on, I, man. I, <laughs> I, I maybe uh, I'll, I'll leave the ball in your court to kind of sum up with, with a, I have maybe one final sort of question for you where, like, where do you see, or how do you think, especially within Christian circles, we're going to move towards a, a healthier conversation about this, even within like, conversations between me and you who are obviously we, we both share the same faith and, and have been able to have a like to some extent it seems like we had a pretty good conversation here what do you what do you think even to the extent of using this conversation as an example what what's what's working here that's not working in so many other cases um again i come back to christ um he wasn't exactly uh <laughs> re, uh how can we how can i put this I mean, he, he, he ticked off a lot, awful lot of people um, to the point where they killed him. I mean, he really, really angered them. So I'm not, and he did say, you know, I don't come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. He said it. Right. So it, it's, I don't think you're going to be able to because the bottom line is even Christ himself said, he's not coming to bring peace. He's coming to bring division um, and he will cause division. And he is even today. Anyway, so, so okay. So there's right. no hope. No hope. <laughs> Hopeless. Okay. All right. Well, that's a pretty negative note to end on. But <laughs> I mean, I I really appreciate you taking you know several hours to sit down and, and chat with me and share your perspective on I'll this. Get, I'll get a nap next time first. Get a <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks again, man. Okay. Thanks for having me. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. 